One live. Welcome to the Going With Dishes podcast, episode 239. This week, we have Soulshine Growing uh, talking to us about copyleft cannabis. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of the spiritual successor to Open Cannabis Project, uh, and um, we're excited to have him on the show and uh, kind of talk to people about, um, you know, this topic in a, in a way that's not gloom and doom and uh, kind of uh, uh, get into some some interesting things and ideas that I think a lot of people haven't talked about or heard about before. So I think it's going to be a fun show. Um, before we get started, um, I wanted to give a quick shout, um, a quick plug for our class, if you aren't aware. Um, Marty and I do have a full uh, online aquaponic uh, cannabis class over available over at apmjclass.com. Uh, we have over 650 slides, uh, hundreds of hours of recorded content. Uh, it's a really, really awesome class. We have guides on all different types of insects, farm chores, uh, all different types of cool stuff. So definitely check that out. And then we also have apmjnutes.com. If you need nutrients or testing, you can get checked out over there. Alrighty, um, thanks a lot for joining us. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what copyleft cannabis is? Uh, I think a lot of people haven't heard about the concept of uh, utilizing um, patents in a non-destructive way for cannabis. And uh, I'd love for you to educate everybody on uh, how they're, uh, they can be used maybe in a more positive way. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Great to be on and thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm Soulshine Growing, or Caleb, and uh, I'm an ethnobotany student as well as uh, for about the last nine years, a medical marijuana grower, uh, amateur plant breeder, and uh, I've done a number of startup projects and uh, some invention in my past, um, some work with patenting and whatnot. So I'm uh, just coming out of watching the evolution of cannabis and uh, being kind of in the back seat, doing some consulting here and there, taking care of my own grows and, uh, you know, friends and families grows and uh, seeing the need in this space in the evolution of the cannabis space, just like the evolution of many spaces uh, to engage with the IP world, the intellectual property world in a good way. So, I'm working, uh, coordinating with a small growing group of people, and we'd love to have people who are listening involved as well to form a not-for-profit copyleft cultivars. And that's going to be to preserve and protect plant genetics, breeders, and cultivators with copyleft creative commons. A lot of people might not be familiar with copyleft as a process or what copyleft means. It's essentially taking copyright uh, and copyright law, and then flipping that uh, so that it serves the common good and so that it serves to protect freedom, freedom uh, libre, 
as in uh, freedom, not free as in free beer, uh, is a common saying in the free software movement. So yeah, just carrying on that legacy and bringing that system now to the cannabis market uh, as it engages with the larger legal system. So can you explain the structure and kind of how that works? Yeah, so in patenting and copyright, those are two kind of interconnected sections of law. And when you look at patenting, for example, there's a big process of actually formulating a patent, patent applications with the USPTO, uh, usually involving attorneys. And then there's a lot of different types of patents and uh, a lot of patent litigation that goes on. And then there's in copyright, similarly, uh, you want to have it formulated in some sort of readable manner, but the barrier is much lower. In fact, in a lot of cases, most notoriously music or software, as soon as you create the work, as soon as you create the artistic work, then that work is uh, distilled in a readable format and then you have the copyright. So there isn't the same filing process. Then uh, as that evolves, certain things can be trademarked, uh, certain marks can be filed with the government similar to a patent, uh, but it's a lot more accessible to people. And so patenting has been traditionally used by a lot of large groups in other sectors. And I think there's a bit of a push in cannabis to look at using that in cannabis and with plants. But I think uh, we can actually take examples from the free software movement in software and from other agricultural movements as well and uh, use copyright. So that's the approach that we're taking. In order to make that possible, there needs to be an organization that actually offers uh, and defends the copyleft license. So you know, when you would make this copyright, when you would make a new thing, how would you introduce it to the world? You'd introduce it to the world through an agreement with a nonprofit that says this is a, a common good. And, you know, the nonprofit can assure that it is safe as a common good, protect the people that use it, protect the originator of it. And so, yeah, that's why we're looking to use the uh, formation of a nonprofit. Awesome. Um, uh, so, uh, how would this work for a breeder, and and why would they use this over some other method? Do they need to have, you know, what do they need to have in order to um, even try to get the stuff together to to utilize this? Yeah. Well, I think there's several layers to that. You know, first there's just wanting to do good for the community and for the future when we use things in the common good, I feel like it's very empowering then to build on them and then put it back into the common good. All of the strains that we know and love were put out into the public domain. They've been uh, released. And when you get a, a cut, when you get some seeds, there's typically no restrictions on what you do with that. And so you, we see the flourishing of abundance in cannabis that there is. I like to think of chairs, you know, and it's kind of funny, like chairs, okay. Um, but chairs are a simple thing that we use all the time. 
And back when chairs were first invented, you know, there wasn't an intellectual property system. And the idea was released out into the world as ideas naturally do. And as a result, we have all of the abundance of chairs and you and I and most of the listeners use chairs uh, either today or most days of our lives. And uh, we don't really think about that, right? But if you were to do an improvement on some chair design, put it out to the world, maybe someone would notice it and be like, yeah, this actually really solves like a lower back issue that I have or you know, who knows what, but this is uh, what's really empowering about putting something into the common good is we get to see then so many people benefited, more people benefited than if we had to make individual patent agreements and licensing agreements with each one of them. So uh, imagine then if the person who originated a chair had lived in a time when intellectual property existed and the chair then was restricted under some sort of uh, copyright restriction, trademark restriction, or patent restriction. We wouldn't have swivel chairs. We may not even have armchairs as an existing phenomena, as an idea in reality. You know, it's not just that someone might not put it out there and make money from it, but someone might not even work on the idea because it's dangerous, because, uh, Ultimately, the intellectual property system is a system of prohibition. It's a system of getting registration with the government in order to prohibit the future use uh, of that thing in ways that the intellectual property rights holder doesn't want. Um, so if you don't want your work to be taken and distorted, maybe have one small change put onto it and then have it privatized and locked away, and you want to see it create many progenous work, many things, many new strains or many new products or many new discoveries in the world. You want scientists and cultivators to be able to access it, patients and recreational enjoyers to be able to benefit from it, then putting it into a copyleft system, having a protected form of open source is the way to go for you. And not only that, but then you're part of a system, you're part of a community like we've seen with free software. And it's really astounding to see if you look at the history of free software and open source software, how it started out you know, from Richard Stallman back at MIT and then having him in 1985 found the Free Software Foundation. And then that's just a small group and it builds, you know, and until now, groups like Google are going to court and defending open source. They're paying people. There's people being paid by large corporations to work on open source and release it into the public, work on open source code and products. And it's because the system works. It works really super, super well. Uh, and if anybody wants to check out why it works, it, you know, this system has been around now long enough in other fields uh, that, that we understand why it works. There's a great book called The Cathedral in the Bazaar by Eric Raymond. And he talks about why, you know, the bazaar where we're all sharing these ideas, why that might actually create more abundance in the citadel where things are isolated and only people with granted permissions can work on them. And so we've seen in software 
open source systems have overtaken. And, you know, you're probably right now listening to this on an Android or a laptop system that involves some sort of open source. If you're listening to it on a mobile device, you're certainly working through some sort of open source backbone, whether that's the iOS that's built on an open source or Android that's built on an open source backbone. And so those developers are being paid and this is the kind of ecosystem we want to create, right? We, when you think about where cannabis is headed, there's all this fear and like, like you mentioned, Steve, in the beginning, the doom and gloom. And I think that that is the path that happens if we don't do anything. That's the path that happens if the grassroots people, the breeders just let it happen. And that then it's defined for us. You know, if we don't create the idea ecosystem, one will be created for us, uh, like has happened in corn and infamously with Monsanto. Over 400 small farmers sued without evidence, out of business, many of them, um, due to these seed patents and the litigations. And so having a system like this in place helps to prevent that, helps to make it so that we can protect the people that use it, helps protect the varietals, and then maybe creates this ecosystem which when the big players come in, instead of trying to litigate people to death, they benefit from it. We all benefit from it and they work with it. And we're able to all create this idea sharing economy, create this wealth of information and breeders then have access to that. They have access to the resources from that. They have access to the high breeding software, the high tech breeding software that can be uh, offered through this system with the corpus of information, the mass knowledge set of all of the copulated genetics, any growing data from that, and that can be made available. So breeders uh, opting into this system, I think there's a ton of advantages. And uh, then finally, to round it all off, really, there's the direct and palpable safety, knowing that you're not going to have to deal with IP litigation in the same way that someone uh, who's just out there without some form of protection would. And, you know, in the tech industry, unfortunately, that's more than 10,000 tech companies each year who are sued by a patent troll. 84% of high tech patent lawsuits are related to patent trolls, and it's $2.8 million USD for the average cost of defense. So I don't think a lot of breeders out there, a lot of cultivators have $2.8 million on average cost to spend on patent litigation. Uh, we need a better answer. And so I feel, and a lot of people are agreeing that we need a community organization which can stand together and make it so that this idea ecosystem is out there, available, make all these resources available and interconnect all these breeders so that it's not just one breeder or one group fighting, uh, having to pay $2.8 million average in attorney's fees, but instead it's an organization stepping in saying, no, you can't pick on the small breeder. No, you can't pick on the small cultivator uh, and actually intervening. And the open cannabis license, I have a copy here, the open cannabis license that Strainly put together based off of 
Creative Commons licenses from software and the Open Source Seed Initiative, which does this for food crops. It actually allows then uh, the beneficiary organization, the nonprofit, to intervene. So uh, it's a really powerful tool to create community action and to bond together. And I believe we have the opportunity now as a community to put it into action and to get this in place before the big actors, the big lawsuits come in. I know we're already seeing a few of them with the Wrigley's lawsuit, for example. And, uh, you know, this is unfortunately won't be the last. Um, and before too long, just like with agriculture, it will reach its way down to genetics. It'll reach its way down to the strains, control of the plant itself, control of the actual thing that produces the flower and who can grow, who can grow the nice new flower. Uh, or if someone can't even make or conceptualize or get the seed stock to create uh, or legally create with the seed stock they have that new cannabis. So I think we have a great opportunity now to put that in place and make that option available for the community. So there's uh, some people in chat that don't quite understand it. So what what would what, explain to people that are maybe afraid of this or worried that this could be quickly sold off to a Monsanto or something like that, that would be, you know, how, um, what do you, how do you uh, answer those types of things? Because I don't think they quite understand how that all works and and that it's definitely something I hear a lot of people concerned about. So I'd love to hear you talk about, especially with, you know, there was a company before that went out and really misled a lot of breeders and um, uh, started, um, you know, uh, another company to, to do their data collection that later became, uh, you know, ended up dissolving because of it. But um, uh, what, uh, what do you say to the people that are worried about it? Because I'd love to hear, see, you know, you, you've definitely addressed this really well on so many other times I've heard you talk about it. So, Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. And that's something I've thought a lot about. So that really is the reason we need to have a nonprofit. And as we're bringing this together, when we put these things into the public, uh, the public access to them means that they can't just be pulled back down, you know? We're not making any sort of package behind a pay door of the genetics. And I think that's really uh, critical here. There's, no, there's nowhere for that type of product to be developed. And that really aligns with some of my key values in this transparency, grassroots involvement. You know, I'm coming out of, uh, coming out of the sidelines to make this happen because I feel that it needs, uh, it needs to be addressed. You know, yeah, we've seen other approaches come up, but I don't think they've been adequate and I don't think they're the right approach. And I don't, that's not the fault of any of the people who have taken that on. Um, I see it as a very tricky situation to, that's very tricky to craft a solution for. Uh, as I see it, the solution is a nonprofit that, has transparency built deeply into it, that the community is essentially involved on a foundational level within, and where we're making everything that comes in in terms of genetic data available uh, to the public so that it can be the tide that lifts all boats. Uh, I also want to make the key distinction 
there have been other groups, for example, the Open Cannabis Project, where they have put forward a good ethos towards this. But again, their approach maybe is under the, uh, the name of open source, but is actually uh, more of a public domain approach. Their mission was uh, to document cannabis plants to create prior art and prevent overboard patents. And I think that's noble. And I, I think that that's great. And um, I really respect the people who uh, responded to conflicts and brought that openly, transparently to the community. Um, and so, yeah, there's now the open gap there. And I think that we can create in this gap, in this niche, an answer that's maybe better uh, and, and comes, like I've been saying, from the free software movement, where it's been tried, where there have been in-court victories, like Jacobs v. Katzer, that shows that this can actually be enforced in court, copyleft is actually enforceable under copyright. Uh, other victories that have shown that it can be enforceable under copyright and contract breach doubly. And, you know, a, a slew of different victories for this copyleft approach. Public domain doesn't have the defense element. And so it might get the information out there. They don't necessarily have the same prerogative to get it out there, but it is, you know, uh, part of the process of, of open source is eventually bringing it out there versus in our approach, it's implicit, you know, as it is published, uh, that right is established more fully, more defensively. And so in that approach, we have to bring it to the public, you know, we have to make it available uh, to, to even make it, you know, defensible. And that's why I think that the copy left approach is a little bit better than public domain approaches. There's other groups that are doing really great projects, uh, Canopedia, for example, that is an open system uh, for many different types. So they're just hosting genetic data from lots of different types of uh, intellectual property arrangements and lots of testing data. And so uh, an approach more like that is what we're looking at. Uh, but I still don't think that they fill this niche. Really, we need something, again, that creates this ecosystem, this idea ecosystem. Uh, so it's going to be more than just the nonprofit. It's not just that you're assigning something to the nonprofit. You're actually assigning it essentially to the public good, to, to the commons. And then that's brought, that's made public to the commons, you know, all of us, all beings. And we uh, then the nonprofit acts as the beneficiary of that and defends it, defends the users of it. So I think that that uh, overcomes some of these other attempts. There's also cool things we can try to do that even go beyond this. Uh, some of you might have seen the TED Talk by the attorney uh, Damien Real, and he talks about copywriting all melodies to avoid accidental infringement. I think that's a great idea a finite amount of genetic sequences just like a finite amount of musical sequences and uh so we'd like to explore that option as well that's just been brought to my attention more recently we may be able to do that with cannabis as well so i think there's uh layers of approaches but having the nonprofit, which inherently built into it has this transparency 
as a centered node, so to speak, or a glue to hold this ID ecosystem together. But that's the key. And that, that transparent nature, the fact that it's not siloed into anything, the fact that there's not um, internal research that's not being shared in, uh, in a developmental or proprietary manner, you know, that it's all open, uh, that prevents inherently some of the issues with uh, having it bought off and, and having it privatized. We'd also like to design within the infrastructure of the nonprofit itself uh, provisions which prevent that and I believe that we can. I've seen some examples and we're working with some great people. Also some lawyers who shout out to the wonderful lawyers who are helping us and giving us some great feedback on this. So we're working together and uh, we'd love to have additional feedback from people. There's nonprofit experts who are listening, screaming out that there's a way to do it. Like, I wanna hear from you, let's do it. That's the point of having a nonprofit project, you know, it's uh, by the community for the community. I just stepped out here to, to put it into action, seeing that it wasn't there, seeing this open space and uh, having had some experience in similar fields, not wanting the sort of IP issues that I've faced to, to be facing our industry and facing the plant that I love so much. So, um, I, we all need to come together on this. You know, that's a big reason why I'm out here and why I'm on these, uh, why I'm on this show is really to get the word out, to get people involved, to get breeders ready to uh, help to have their, their work protected, to make this idea accessible to people. And then if people want to run with it in their own ways, or they want to step in and get involved more fully, um, they want to give feedback, you know, uh, I welcome that. And that's how, that's another way that we keep this open and keep this of the people and keep this uh, non-proprietary and public. So I had a question for you on the patent side, because this just seems like, and this to me is just like the goofy ass, weird, like using a hammer for, you know, uh, the wrong thing, kind of like a sledgehammer for a, a finishing nail kind of problem. But what if you took a date like would this function in court could you just take your um dna profile from your strain and then take a picture of it and then make it a non-fungible token and then patent it that way as a copyright protect well i'm not a lawyer uh but i think there is some serious uh possibility with the nfts angle there's a really interesting thing that happens uh where the law describes a basic concept. And then in our American legal system, lawyers fight sometimes over the course of a hundred different cases to chip down to how the law applies to reality. And NFTs has no precedent to my knowledge. There's no legal background. So that's a huge uphill battle to try to win these. And I think that's, a key takeaway that viewers um, can remember is we want to be pragmatic. We don't want to reinvent the wheel and create a super complicated system that then we have to fight, fight, fight and, and establish. We want, if possible, one, two steps in order to have it established uh, that are well documented and that have good previous 
establishment, say court precedent, for example. And I think that's where uh, things like NFTs have a ton of potential and I'm excited for where that's headed. And I don't necessarily think that that's the best route to it. I think that uh, just any method of making the genetics available and readable uh, by my understanding and based off of a number of different uh, law opinions and law reviews that I've read uh, that that constitutes a copyright uh, right. You know, you've created the artistic work in a way uh, as a breeder, we are programmers, you know, if, if we're creating through the breeding process, through selection, a certain code, editing the code of the genetics, that genetic code is much like a computer program, right? Then when it's read, it creates the functions and then that leads to the program or uh, the plant growing out, whether that's via electrical signals or via proteins and protein folding. But uh, nonetheless, we've created a code that can be ran uh, to produce a thing. And so in a way, we're gen just genetic programmers. And uh, then all of the programming case law should apply. And, and as far as I'm aware, that's just one step. You know, that's, uh, that's very pragmatic because it's, uh, we, all we need to do is prove that this all this vast legal doctrine applies to cannabis. And, uh, and that's not a hard sell in a court of law, you know. Uh, with patents, that has been established with plants in general. And I think that's where patents have uh, one advantage. But I think that the supreme disadvantage of patents is uh, that if you just don't have the money to defend it in court, then uh, you really may not hold on to that patent in the end. Uh, I actually had this happen to me in a past business uh, with uh, green energy technology. And we went and we got a defensive patent on it. And then uh, through a series of litigation and uh, just running us out of funds, essentially, we uh, lost control of the patent and uh, the business was obliterated and shut down. So uh, it's a, you know, it happens to many people. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that we can, we can prevent that type of thing from happening if we use a copyleft system. You know, the patent system may be very functional for big conglomerates or big businesses. And, uh, you know, I respect the people that choose to go that method and that route. Uh, and I ask them to question whether they can afford to defend that, knowing that an LLC cannot self-represent. And so if you have this under an LLC or business, you will have to pay the attorney's fees. Uh, if you do not, you likely still will still need to pay the attorney's fees because uh, being pro se is very difficult. Uh, and that uh, is not an issue with copyleft. You know, with copyleft, you don't uh, have the same issue where you're having to fight to defend those rights because they're considered more of a public good until you have groups uh, like copyleft cultivars is intended to be. 
a not-for-profit that can defend it or free software foundation uh, in the software movement. So there's these organizations that then are ways for us to all come together and have collective strength. And I think we, we all know that singularly, we are, uh, you know, small and relatively weak. I'm just me, you know, but if we bond together, many, many people are very strong. You know, we're like a bundle of twigs and one twig can snap very easily, especially when a large amount of pressure is exerted on it, say from uh, large scale litigation, uh, analogously. And if we all come together, there's a large bundle here, right? And then if one stick is being pressed on super hard, it, we're able to all support and hold this together. And so this is uh, the grassroots approach, which I think is uh, distinct and can work hand in hand with patents. Uh, there are some people talking in the cannabis community about having a defensive league a defensive IP league. And I really support that. I'd love for Copyleft Cultivars to be a part of that. Um, yeah, that's a great example. Absolutely. Those of you who don't know, at somewhere in Southeast Asia, they build these out of tree bark and they, they'll take a tree and put it across a bridge to make a bridge. And then they run the roots across it from the strangler figs and a couple of the other trees. And then it forms these natural bridges that can last you know, a thousand years or more and survive floods and everything else and not, not ever break. So anyways, remind me of that when you were talking about. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that connects in really well to something I feel is deeply central to this. Um, it's the indigenous perspective. And, you know, we all come from indigenous people, our ancestors somewhere along the way were indigenous. And that togetherness, that sense of community, uh, the ethos of sharing is caring, that that is in our blood, you know, that's how we as humans survived. We showed each other, like, here's how you make fire. And then their family thrived too. And then we traded and we did well. And, you know, there's this togetherness and this sense of community good that's instilled within each of us. Um, and, you know, my, uh, my Native American ancestors and Salettes and Cherokee and Sioux, they all had different ideas of how uh, ideas, how new ideas moved around, but they all had an emphasis on sharing. And there's no indigenous community, no ancestral community that included intellectual property rights. You know, there was no one person creating a concept and then deciding what someone else does with it. Uh, there was really like you kept an idea to yourself, uh, you know, a trade secret, so to speak, or you shared it with the community. Uh, and, you know, if you wanted to share it to the community and then you would benefit from it directly, uh, you could experience that immediately, you know? And in the modern world, it's so much bigger. It takes a little bit more time to experience it. But in this process of evaluating whether this is the right approach to take, you know, I've talked to a couple hundred people actually at this point in the cannabis community with really great perspectives and um, 
a lot of experience. And some of the old timers I've talked to have talked about seeing their work carry forward and how much joy that brings them and how empowering that is. And uh, I think that that is something that is not as highlighted in the modern era, but it's something that we feel really deeply. You know, there's the keys to happiness throughout life, the keys to feeling fulfilled, like one of them is actually contributing. You know, one of them is this contribution to society and helping of others. And I think that's really fundamental to how we feel good about ourselves, especially getting older into life. And so um, this sort of a system puts that value first. And to put this into context, you know, this isn't a new idea. This idea that we share ideas, it's timeless. The first patent that was made in 1416 in Venice, the first US patent uh, in 1790 for the production of potash. So agriculture has a deep relationship with intellectual property. Um, but it wasn't until 1996 that via the pioneer hybrid seeds case, this intellectual property stuff started to apply to plants. And so that's an even further layer. And, you know, if you think about it, that's not even a whole generation of people versus the timeless ancestral generations that we have before us that created these amazing things around us that created like how you make houses and how you make chairs and all of these things. And, you know, the cannabis breeders in ancient Iran and Afghanistan and these in India and these ancient traders who brought it from place to place, you know, they didn't take it to a new place on the Silk Road and go, here's some seeds. Hey, by the way, uh, if you sell these to anyone else, uh, we're going to come after you. And, uh, you know, no, we had this, this way of building up society. And so, yeah, this is a return to that ethos and uh, an instillment of those values, those traditional cannabis culture values that we've exemplified that I love so much about our culture. You know, you like go to these events, hang out with the homies, trade some clones like it's great. It's beautiful. And we do so much better from it. And it contributes to the wellness of the plant. So instilling that in a system that can protect it is, uh, in my opinion, what we need to do if we want it to continue you know we need to and if maybe you are listening and you look inside yourself you have a moment of awareness now and you look inside yourself and you go yeah this is important yeah we sharing does benefit all of us you know then yeah spread the word and get involved and start to create breeding projects for this sort of thing and you know if you're in a jurisdiction where us in the US, it might be hard to do this. We'd love to help assist elsewhere. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Also, there's uh, the Discord. If you're more further away from the concept and you just want to contribute like that, there's the uh, GoFundMe. So we have lots of different ways. And if you, you know, feel like I do, it's not, this isn't just about me, you know. I'm, I'm just Caleb, I'm just me, you know. But this is, uh, 
this is the community that already exists, the sharing that already exists. And, uh, and if you agree with me that we need to do this, then yeah, let's do this as a community. Let's put into place this ecosystem and let's, in the organizations that you work in, put this into practice in your own breeding, you know, start to think about how you can put this into practice. Seed banks, how can you prioritize this sort of sharing mentality and this kind of free, open, uh, and again, free as in freedom, not free beer. So still able to make money, still able to profit, still able to feed our families, um, but prioritizing that sharing, benefiting all people mentality that's brought our community so far. I really encourage that. And so uh, that's at its core, you know, what this is going to take. It's going to take the whole community or as many of us as feel within ourselves uh, that this needs to happen. All doing our little pieces and uh, making it happen, you know. And together we're strong, like that bridge that Steve was showing, you know. And uh, together as a community, we can walk across that bridge, you know, if we if we can create this. So uh, the wheels are turning and it's happening. We're very close to formally founding the organization as a not-for-profit in Oregon. And we're starting to do starting next week on Monday, bi-weekly, that's every other week, bi-weekly, uh, team meetings that you can also join through the Discord, uh, copyleftcanvas.org. And this is, uh, this is the sort of thing that we're just gonna continue moving forward slow and steady and uh, continuing to make sure that it's open, not rushing anything to make sure that transparency and grassroots can happen and uh, just moving it forward. So there's gonna be lots of opportunities and uh, yeah, we need, we need you. We need everyone who's listening in your little way, contributing towards this. Uh, so that's how we make big change. Yes, for those of you that don't know, the Scathians were the ones that really helped spread cannabis around uh, Asia more than any other culture. They were horsemen and um, cannabis was part of their clothing, part of their culture. They found cannabis residue in some of their cups for drinking as well as smoking implements. So they were smoking it and drinking it and, uh, you know, doing all the fun things, spreading it around Europe long before or uh, Asia long before everyone else was. So pretty cool. Yeah, I love that about this plant, you know, brings us together and it really promotes that sharing. I think that there's something within it, you know, whether you want to say the spirit of it or, you know, the biochemical signal cascade that comes from imbibing it, it encourages that. It encourages that sharing. And I think that there's so much that has come out of that. If you look at the cannabis community historically, it's just such a beautiful phenomenon. And uh, there's a lot of things it has in common with software and a lot of things in common with the early computer days. But in a way, uh, it also comes with it, uh, this ancient, ancient legacy that computers and that other industries don't have, you know? We don't even know all of the societies, all of the groups who carried this around and improved it and benefited it so that we can be benefited from it. And 
I feel that gratitude, you know, I think that a lot of us feel that when you're sitting down and, you know, you take a nug and you're like, oh, yeah, like this is beautiful. And how did it get so beautiful? You know, how did it get all these smells, this complexity? And maybe just like sitting there and observing it and, and being filled with gratitude or maybe taking a hit and tasting it or tasting it in a baked good. And yeah, I, I get filled with this sense of gratitude that all of these hands, all of this human work, so many hours and intentions and love has been put into this plant. And then just the culture that's blossoming out of it is so beautiful and vibrant in so many ways, just like how the flower comes out with its vibrance and with all of these subtleties of smells. And it's, it's something to be cared for, you know? We care for our flowers and for our plants with such heart. And uh, yeah, we need to care for the community in that same way. Uh, there's a lot of like little squabbles here and there that happen, but I think it's the togetherness and the sharing, you know, share a joint, share a conversation, share some advice about how to grow the plant or a new observation. And that's, uh, that's what it's all about. You know, it brings us back from those little issues, just like this plant can bring us back and, and ground us again. And so, yeah, I think that's really powerful. And I'm so grateful for everyone who had a hand in creating this complexity, you know, mother nature to begin with. And then and who knows how many hands, who knows how many people, how many generations have worked on this plant. Uh, and it's our, it's our honor and our responsibility to care for it too, you know, and care for it in this new landscape. It's not just how do we find a, a good spot in the Himalayas where we can have our patch, you know, and, and defend it from maybe neighbors or from maybe um, some other government or something, you know, like some ancestors have. Um, Speak for yourself. Sign me up for the Himalayan compound. Right. Well, I and see, I think we include that. And I like that. You know, we have the preservation uh, library happening in the Himalayas, actually. Um, that Arazin is doing. And I think that it, it goes beyond that, you know, it's uh, we've built, it's, it's finding the patch and it's finding the cultivars and it's finding the inputs and it's finding the style, the skills, you know, we've built so much, all of the love and passion, all of the devotion of, all, you know, people like me and people like you and people like the listeners, um, and, you know, especially the people that braved life-threatening conditions and threats of imprisonment uh, and, you know, people that came across continents in ancient times with this. So, yeah, it's just really, I just feel so much gratitude about it. And just like we would put some IPM spray as a preventative uh, on our gardens, for example, uh, especially if we're thinking oh like this upcoming is the time of season that we're going to have a certain type of pest you know you might anticipate it with some preventative 
think that's what this copyleft thing is really. We're at this time where, yeah, our plants aren't all eaten up and destroyed, but any any uh, farmer who's been doing this for a little bit knows that's uh, when you don't see the issues is when you start to prepare, you start to prevent and, you know, so and we're seeing a little bit. I mean, like in my mind, the Wrigley lawsuit and, you know, the recent lawsuit about extraction technologies, uh, these stand out as okay some of our neighbor plants uh have some speckles on them you know they have a little bit of some signs of of pest that we might need to be proactive towards and uh, and then you look at the neighbor field corn for example and the corn industry has just been obliterated by this this type of of problem this pathogen or pest so to speak um and I'm speaking of, you know, predatory litigation. A lot, those, a lot of those pests are because they're growing in sterile fields. If they actually had living soil, a lot of this stuff, would, Septoria is a great example of one that would ra ravages corn sometimes. And, you know, if you got, all you got to do is fix the soil. It's funny, like how, 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 you know, their, their movement towards this corporatized patent, every single last aspect has, has caused them to be more susceptible to disease, which I think is funny. Yeah. Oh, you hit that right on the head. And I, I love that. I think that that carries totally into it as well. Like we, yeah, we got to fix the soil, you know, we got to work on making sure to have the capacity and the vibrance, the microbial life, you know, within our community to be resilient to those issues. Yeah. There's a great documentary if no one, uh, or if anyone out there hasn't seen it, you should totally check it out, micro documentary. So it's not too long. It's called Seeding Fear. And it's by uh, Neil Young, actually. He was the producer. It's about some of these things that happened in corn and about how even some of the farmers that fought tooth and nail in court against the claims by Monsanto, the IP related claims, uh, which had no evidence, no material evidence behind them in many cases, uh, that some of these farmers, even when they won, had lost their farms, had lost their livelihood, and uh, many of them, you know, died in, in poverty conditions. And it's really actually quite sad. And that sort of thing, it motivates me to be proactive. Yeah, it's a lot like seeing the cornfield next door obliterated by Septoria and just thinking, oh man, we better go around and, and check every little bit of this field and make sure that we're ready, you know. And yeah, it's it's not just uh, it's not just one of us out here doing this, you know. It's almost like we're we are the microbial community. We are the soil, so to speak, here for the community, you know. And we we have to prepare ourselves. We have to create systems. Uh, and I know some people have tried to make these systems in the past, but. Uh, when we have a system that works, you know, that's the whole thing about thinking pragmatically. When we have a system that works, it's just going to click, you know, conflicts of interest and things like that uh, won't arise because it'll be built properly. And so maybe some people that have followed the last six months uh, have popped up here and there, talked about this idea, uh, asked a lot of people about this idea. And, you know, you might be wondering, oh, why is it not? a nonprofit today, you know, it's, uh, 
we have to put this together very mindfully. And that's part of how we avoid the pitfalls um, that other groups may have fallen into is we just be transparent. We, we create it and uh, we create it in a way where those pitfalls uh, just won't, won't naturally arise. Right. Just like when you create a good living soil, you don't necessarily have to figure out every little element of it. But if you construct the fundamentals so that it fits, then a lot of it can self-correct, you know. And so, yeah, luckily, uh, nonprofit structure is great for that. You know, uh, I would be distrustful of any for-profit group involved in this sphere because, uh, well, for-profit involves taking uh a development and making money from it you know taking a thing that would otherwise potentially be free or would not exist and then making money from it and uh you know we all got to feed our families and take care of ourselves and uh for the community good you know if we're looking to take care of the community then yeah a nonprofit is is what we need so uh yeah we don't have a nonprofit out there yet but uh I do feel like that is that is what's needed. And that's what's filled this gap in other industries too, with software, with the open source seed initiative for food crops. Uh, so it is again, a, a tried and true method. Really trying not to invent the wheel here. I think this is all, you know, it's complicated and it takes a bit to wrap your head around, but luckily it's not, totally new you know in fact it's uh it's pretty well established in a lot of other areas and the the game the game that they're trying to play they being you know the large corporate players in this is to prepare for this on their side you know they're getting together lawyers i'm sure and they're getting together their plans for ip litigations and and different patents and we're already seeing you know some very broad patents just being tossed out there so that maybe they can be a basis for litigation later uh and you know all these little preparations on that side um but that's because they know that if uh if they let it out of the bag too early then we might assemble something like this you know we might create we might bind together and create that bundle of sticks before they can start breaking individual sticks. So that's why there's that quietness, you know? Um, but I, I think that people that have experience in the software world or other parts of agriculture, other places where IP has been very big, uh, will see this too, you know? A lot of them do. A lot of people are already trying to work on solutions towards this because they also see it. Uh, there, as soon as there is an established route in the court system to enforce on cannabis businesses, this sort of intellectual property thing, and just like any established sector, uh, it'll swing through and the gates will open and they'll suddenly be incredibly prepared. It'll be astonishing. This is my prediction. It'll be astonishing how well prepared these large scale businesses are to jump in and, uh, uh, you know, very creatively privatize and take over the cannabis space. Uh, I just don't have the heart to watch that happen. I just don't have the heart to sit on the side and grow my plants and, and watch this beautiful ecosystem 
be carved up. So yeah, that's, uh, there's so much potential, you know, this is like a, it's a golden era for cannabis. You may not feel like it sometimes again with like little squabbles, Instagram squabbles or whatnot, but really we live in, in a golden era for cannabis and for the diversity of the plant. And that's something to, yeah, to carry forward and make it continue to make it a golden era for the future generations. Awesome. Um, so what do people need if they want to try and get their, what do they need to do if they want to put their cultivar into Copula? Uh, what, what do they need to do? Yeah, so that's a great question. The process, as we've figured it out thus far, you would take a breeding project. And luckily in cannabis, these great breeders of the past have put out public domain works. So we can take just about any variety that you're working on, right? And then as soon as a breeder produces seeds and those seeds, uh, then some of them are germinated, let's say, that that uh, is when the genetic code is being functioned. It's already an established code. It's been written, right? So all we need then is for it to be readable, right? Because as we said in the past, copyright just needs it to be an artistic work that's been written and is readable in documented form. So then when that grows out, a sample can be sent to one of our allied genetic test places, uh, one of the labs that can test the genetics and get us genome sequencing. And then the genome sequence is published. And the publishing of the genome sequence uh, happens at the same time as the copyleft license is initiated with the breeder. The copyleft license, again, strainly, Put it all together uh we may do some very minor changes but we of course make it very public and open and available and all aligned with the ethos of it uh but you can actually find this on stranley's website i believe it's open source breeding part two and that agreement is executed by the breeder as the genetics are published at that point the breeder just has to put a little sticker that has a very short summary of the copyleft principles, essentially saying, in order to value your rights and the rights of others, we have to make sure that uh, no one forces you to let go of your rights and that you aren't forcing anyone else to let go of their rights. It's the gist of it. And then that goes on seed packs and seed listings as it's sold. So as usual, as is the norm, the breeders can produce their seeds, they can go to seed banks so they can be released in the typical manners. Um, and then also this can go with clones, the same thing. This makes it possible for us to do a number of different things uh, down the road, like authenticity, genetic authenticity certifications. I'm really excited about that because then we can say, oh yes, this is actually this strain. You know, you know you're actually getting the right 
the right thing because we uh, tested the sample and it matched our published sequence. And so here you get the stamp of authenticity. And uh, so that type of function just flows right into the protection. So yeah, as soon as they've gotten these seeds out into the world with these stickers on them or label, uh, then they're protected. They're considered protected. And if there's any issues uh, with future attempts to patent that work or privatize it, if there's <clears throat> attempts to litigate against the breeder in a predatory manner or attack cultivators that are using that varietal, then the nonprofit can protect it. Uh, so it's a really straightforward thing for breeders. Again, it's just you breed it, you work with one of our allies to get it sequenced you sign the agreement, we publish the sequence, and then you include the sticker with your uh, distributions. And then if someone gets a hold of those seeds, they want to do their own breeding project, then of course they would have needed to get the seeds from you. So maybe uh, pay you or whatever agreement you have with them. Uh, and then they can use those seeds to produce more seeds, so their own varietals, let's say, and then they, uh, in that development of a new strain, in using a copyleft strain, uh, are producing then a copyleft strain. So the new strains that they produce then from copyleft strains are then uh, included within the copyleft system. So it just follows like that and becomes a, a bit viral, uh, which is pretty awesome. And that doesn't necessarily take expense on people down the line uh, while still offering that protection. It's actually pretty awesome and pretty, uh, pretty easy for the breeders. We'd like to do it free of cost. That is the goal we are working towards. However, offering full genetic sequencing uh, to get the whole genome is a bit pricey at the current time. So uh, we're working with different groups to try to get that uh, established, figure out maybe some bulk and nonprofit uh, deals that we can work at and that sort of thing. But that would be that and basic administration to do the filings would be uh, all the costs involved, you know, maybe $200 uh, or $300 versus what can be thousands and thousands of dollars for patents. Very cool. I'm going to uh, do a quick break here in the middle uh, uh, and plug in my uh, speaking event next weekend. So I'll be speaking at the Lucky Leaf Expo on May 15th. Uh, if you are in Austin, Texas, and you want to come talk aquaponic cannabis, uh, I will be on both the cultivation panel as well as giving my own hour-long seminar on aquaponics and then uh, a little bit on edible uh, CBD at the end. So uh, it'll be a really cool um, presentation. Um, if you don't make uh, this one, uh, I will also be speaking at um, all the other ones that they're doing, um, which is, let me pull the schedule up here. Austin, May 14th and 15th, Dallas, 9th and 10th, Oklahoma City, September 3rd and 4th, Jacksonville, Mississippi, October 8th and 9th, Houston, Texas, November 5th and 6th, and Albuquerque, New Mexico uh, on February 25th and 26th. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. 
And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys there. It does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun talking cultivation in, in the South. There aren't a lot of people that have done big scale Southern operations and it's it's a big difference from the West Coast. Ha big, big difference. And the diseases we get, the insects we get, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're, you know, shit, the first year Oklahoma legalized, they had heavy rains. And, and I don't know if I visited a single outdoor farm that didn't have at least one plant with septoria. You know, people didn't even know what septoria was until the plants were ravaged. You know, it was way too late on some of the farms that I visited to do anything about them. Um, you know, it's just, you know, and I'm sure we're going to go through this again when we go to the East Coast. I'm sure we're going to have new diseases and insects that we didn't see at scale. You know, I'm, I'm going in Georgia this year with a client and, you know, I definitely expect to see some insects I haven't seen before in that greenhouse at some point. You know what I mean? Just because it is a very different climate than, than everywhere else I've grown so far. So it's kind of fun and interesting. And uh, and I think that that too with viroids, you know, you see leaf, leaf to curly top virus transferring. And that wasn't something anyone had talked about five years ago. You know, and and uh, uh, hop latent latent virus with and and all the others that can be transferred by whitefly and and all these others that you know shit five ten years ago no one even spoke about or knew it existed right so we knew that plants did weird things certain sometimes for weird reasons but we didn't really have an attributed way we didn't even have access to the technology to quantify it right so I think that also like utilizing this genetic pool you know I would love to see. This gene pool also be used for things like fleshing out, um, you know, potential genetic diseases that are being passed on through the seed lines, because there are there's very clearly viroids that are that are heavily documented now. H HPLV being one of them. Yeah, I think that's super important, and that's something I think uh, this sort of databasing will be a huge opportunity for. I'm actually talking with uh, Matthew Gates or Zenthanol as he's known commonly, and he's awesome. He's pretty involved in this Copyleft project. And so shout out to him. And we've been talking about integrating into this pathogen tracking and also susceptibility tracking, having access to large scale genetics databases and having that publicly available means any jurisdiction in the world, scientists can work on this. It's not just jurisdictions where they can get the plant and test it. No, we can make this in bulk available. So if a scientist in Japan wants to look at powdery mildew infection rates that were co-reported into our samples uh, with the uh, genetic corpus that we have, and they want to use 10,000 samples, uh, ideally, we build this to the point where that can happen. And then we all benefit as a community, because then these scientists who uh, are also working for the common good in these universities and in their pursuit of science, that they uh, can share this with us and make this available, uh, and we all benefit from it. So I think there's huge potential for that. Uh, and then being a nonprofit, we'd really like to allow the benefits of the nonprofit, you know, tax write-off ability and that type of thing for getting testing and looking at the pathogen testing and susceptibility testing. Uh, because if, imagine if you're in a cultivation setting or breeding setting and you have plants which are uh, struggling with, with a certain pathogen repeatedly, 
being able to say, well, this is great. I chose copylefted varieties and we can tax right off our testing for the pathogens so that we can uh, put that data in for the public good through copyleft, you know, that sort of thing is, uh, has not been available for a community. And it's pretty mind blowing when I talk to people in the community about it. But um, yeah, having these things available in mass, uh, and then being able to say, well, if it benefits us all, it, that's what nonprofits are for, you get tax write off, you know, um, especially upon federal legalization, when all the big scale cultivators uh, can actually do tax write-offs could be a game changer uh, in terms of gathering and funding the gathering of this information, making it available for the community and preempting issues. You know, so if we get the data in there and we can predict, oh, this new viroid is spreading along these types of cultivars uh, that can serve the community also in preempting it or in designing cures for it, designing preventatives for it or uh, quarantining to prevent the spread just because we have the knowledge, we have the diagnostic knowledge and the organization. For those of you that don't know, you can get hop latent viroid testing through medicinal genomics as well as I think AgDIA also has a test now for it. Memory serves me right, but the medicinal genomics one tests it for hop latent viroid, lettuce chlorosis viroid, and cannabis cryptic virus. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, they got the better test. <laughs> you know, kind of covering your bases a little more broadly than you would just going with a singular test. So, um, definitely a cool thing. Again, if you're really interested in learning more about this, you know, getting into buying your own testing equipment and stuff like this through your uh, you know, medicinal genomics is who I personally recommend if you really want to build your own lab. Um, you know, it's not that expensive. Now you're looking around four grand, uh, all said and done, you know, maybe 12 or 14 if you really want to get into it. Um, but, you know, for an entry level one, man, you're not even talking that much. You know, it's, it's not that much money um, to start doing some of the stuff yourself. I mean, just the, just a thermal cycler isn't that much, but you know, you're looking around 1200 to $1,400 worth of equipment, you know, uh, to get everything right uh, and everything you need for your whole kit. But it, it's a pretty good, simple little system um, that you can get. And then you can buy all your assays and everything through um, medicinal genomics. They have access to all different types of cool testing and stuff like that, or even have your stuff tested. Uh, I know I send occasionally really screwed up looking plants that I think have viroids to them. Uh, often they do, sometimes they don't, sometimes they don't know. It's fun. Um, but it's definitely a cool thing that you can do. And, um, you know, it helps the pool of data because Kevin uh, McKernan over there has been on the show and, and, you know, he's all about, you know, getting rid of bad information and, and moving things forward. And they have their own, there's the, the, uh, the phylo tree from, from Canopedia. Yeah. you can kind of see the different strains and all that stuff. And um, I think they have a galaxy too somewhere. That you can fly through like the other idiots but um yeah anyways they're really the kind of the the better in my opinion much better suppository of genetic data um they do have uh you know a lot of really interesting strains they do quite a bit of i'm just going to pull this right now let me see if i can find one that's not password protected but you can password protect your public publicly publish your stuff so let's i think this one is there you go so this one's public um, you can see the level of data that they have on it there. Um, uh, and then, you know, 
different things as far as genetic similarity, um, genetic distance. It's, it's a really cool thing. So um, definitely a cool project to, to check out and a great resource if you are trying to protect your stuff one way or another. Um, you know, medicinal genomics is a, is a good one. Uh, you can also submit it and then password protect it and, you know, if you want to hold on to it for a while, uh, you know, it is what it is. But here's just a random plant that Kevin submitted or was submitted by Kevin, I guess. You can see the, uh, the different ratios, the different genetics and different things. It's, it's just interesting. The different possible synthase and um, just the level of data they have is much, much better than any of the other people out there that offer the service. So, yeah, this is a great definitely system. the ones that we recommend for sure. Yeah, I, I mentioned Canopedia earlier, and yeah, that's a, a great system. I love their open approach where they're willing to host and post information for a variety of IP configurations. So they don't require you to. Uh, submit to any given approach or ideology they will support it all and uh, kevin is sorry i went mute there for a moment yeah kevin's great and uh, i really support their project there with canopedia and getting all that information out there feel really deeply aligned with uh, what they're doing over there and i think it connects in this is the kind of ecosystem i was talking about where we need lots of organizations that can click together, fit together, and support uh, with this web of public information and really bring this to the public. Uh, I don't think that most people in the cannabis community realize how much of a game changer it's going to be if we can make, uh, as a community, if we can make massive amounts of information about cannabis genetics, pathogens, and cultivation of those specific genetics. So, so pheno and genotype specific cultivation understandings and chemotype testing. If all of that can be integrated together, there's probably some additional elements that can be worked into that. If that in mass for tons and tons of strains can be put out there to the public, the amount of capability that that opens up for a community is astounding, is truly astounding. Um, you know, we have small groups here and there doing genetic testing, doing pathogen testing, using marker-assisted breeding, doing pathogen susceptibility research, and they're just in small little silos, and they're already producing pretty substantial results. So if we just imagine the exponential jump in results and in progress that we can have by creating this on a mass scale. Uh, it's really, it's really powerful. And I think that we have the imperative to make that happen instead of getting that caught up in the citadels, you know, I use oh. the example from free software, the bazaars instead of citadels, we have an awesome bazaar going on and, uh, and it's about to get even awesomer. So um, let's talk about, so say someone has can, uh, a really good cultivar they've been growing for a long time. There's a lot of people out west or in even other parts of the country um, that have a, a cultivar their family's been growing for generations. 
<laughs> why would they consider putting it into something like this? Um, yeah, so it's first, it's important to distinguish there's three categories. There's unreleased strains, you know, strains that haven't been released and thus don't have any sort of rights attached to them necessarily. They don't have any sort of obligations. And that, that may have been shared with a small group, a family, maybe a small group of friends, a testers, that sort of thing. And uh, that's still considered that. Then there's public domain, which is if something has been released like publicly and it is available or a, a wider crowd and that then uh, is presumed to just be open to the public. You know, it's, it's there and no rights are presumed about that, uh, but no rights can be presumed about that, you know? So if it's been released into the public domain, uh, we can't protect it. You know, we, we really encourage you to get the genetic data to put it on Canopedia or another system, make it publicly available. We really encourage that. We'd like to... Uh, help make that possible also. And then there's the third category, which is uh, copyleft or some sort of open source protection. And if it hasn't been released yet, you know, the first category, it's tested or it's been within closed circles, small groups, communities, then it can be put into the copyleft system. And that's going to protect people because uh, not only does it prevent them from having issues uh, where maybe they could have corporate rating or predatory litigation, uh, and, and this would, having their strain be copylifted, would allow the nonprofit to intervene on their behalf and uh, on behalf of the strain rather, and then uh, to de deter the litigation and uh, free up that small mom and pop operation which I know from my personal experience uh, being an individual uh, at the brunt end of large-scale corporate wealth uh, in litigation, it can be pretty traumatic. And so preventing that trauma is uh, a really big bonus to this. Also, they know that if a cut of that gets out or some seeds get out and then someone patents it uh, again, that can't be turned back around and sue them for having a plant that's too closely related to a corporate patent or something. Uh, and also they know that it can't be locked down like that. If it does get out, uh, it's not going to just be pirated. You know, that's what we call piracy of the genetics. If someone comes and they take some of the genetics and then you privatize it uh, for, for, they privatize it for their benefit, that uh, is a form of piracy. And so that's prevented with the copyleft system. Uh, and then also the mom and pop operation, uh, small scale growers or family operation might feel in their hearts, you know, that this plant has been worked on through generations and that yes, they've done their bits to improve it, uh, but they want to offer it and, you know, continue just like all of the ancestors who held that plant who then passed it forward, right? That they want to make that available and they can make it available now in a greater way even than just releasing it. So they can actually release it in a way where 
the genetics are made available, where it's able to to contribute to the advancement of our understanding of the plant and uh, where it's made available for the community, the wider community as a whole, upcoming breeders if they choose to release it. Um, but they can also just release the genetic data and have these protections and then not release the seeds, not release cuts. That's also fine. They can sell the cuts, uh, sell the seeds, however they choose. And uh, that still carries with it the protections, the copyleft protections. So I think that's uh, several reasons there, you know, four or five, uh, why a small mom and pop operation may want to, uh, or multi-generational family growers may want to register into the system and get this protection on their varietals, even if they don't want to release it. Another group that I want to touch on here is preservationists and uh, groups that are preserving strains, maybe one or two derivations away from land races, or who are in touch with groups that have uh, like family bred varieties in indigenous communities or indigenous locations, that this can be a means to also prevent that type of piracy and prevent the taking of those genetics and the later privatization of those or the uh, piracy and then suit of those people. And it can also preserve the genetics uh, in the public good. My question is, how does that work in the real world? Though? Like, how do you make sure that like that area is protected and not just like the governor or the, the president or uh, El Presidente? <laughs> yeah, I well, that's valid. And uh, I think that if we if we decentralize it from any one individual, that's how we protect it. You know, these are, this is built to work hand in hand with things like Appalachian systems and uh, farmer solidarity breeding networks. This can work hand in hand with those so that instead of one person having their name on an application or uh, a name on a patent, this helps to protect it as a community good. And so if we know that the community good comes from, you know, this certain community here, then it's given that credit and it's given uh, that kind of appellation status when it's registered because it's all in that registration. It's all in the, the license, in the copyleft license uh, application, you know, where it's come from in the community and the history and those genetics get put up publicly it's like these are the genetics of these people and it's not necessarily that you would be able to just go get their seeds um but you would know that if these genetics popped up somewhere else so they probably came from those people you know um so there's there's various levels of protection that it can offer depending on where people are or what they're trying to do So how does this compare to say like cultivar um, protections or or like herbarium work and stuff like that? Because there's a lot of stuff that's done around uh, flowers and things like that in that regard. How does this compare to that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, so UPOV is the International uh, Plant Varietal Protection System and there's international agreements about plant varietal protections and plant varietal rights. That's been interpreted by different countries in different ways. 
And in the United States, that's been interpreted as a USDA system where you could have a varietal that's stabilized. So in the cannabis community, you know, we think of that as an IBL and typically F5 or further, depending on the variety or the strain or the plant that you're working on. But essentially you need to have incredible uniformity. And so it needs to be unique and uniform and distinct. And there's a whole nother classification. So like I was saying in the beginning, there's patent law, you know, and there's trademark law and those are interconnected. And then there's this international plant varietal laws and their implementation in the United States. That's also a separate system. So once federal legalization happens or presently with cannabis varietals that uh, are not THC, that those can be submitted to the US, uh, USDA and the USDA will run tests. Now it costs quite a bit to have them run those uniformity tests, but then you have that whole set of protections. And in my opinion, those protections are um, not as resolutely defendable as a lot of the protections uh, of other, other angles, mainly because you have that one uniform work that you've created for that whole time. And then uh, you've made it so that it doesn't derivate and it, it just has standardization. And then that uh, standardization can be taken and derivated from and made into a new thing. And so uh, then that could be privatized. So it really doesn't have a lot of the same protections. It's really for if you uh, develop, say, an ornamental flower that is, uh, you know, the first purple type of a specific flower that's normally yellow. And every one of the seeds that you germinate of your type uh, comes out purple like that. And there's a big economic value for the purple flowers of that type. And so uh, you could register with uh, the USDA and get that plant varietal protection right and then uh, have that be protected. But with cannabis, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you, for one, there's not a lot of people that are bringing their creations all the way to an inbred line and having extreme uniformity. And then by the time that someone does that and then goes through the USDA process, pays them to do that whole testing and uniformity uh, assurance, then taking that and saying, that uniform feature is so unique and so economically valuable that I can take that into the market and actually say like, I'm the only one with this. And if you, if you get it, then, um, you know, you have to answer to my rights. Well, someone tomorrow just comes up with a slightly different strain that's from a totally different genetic line, but it supplants that place in the market. Uh, the USDA route is just, you know, uh, has put you in the hole at that point, right? You've done all of this work to just to be supplanted by a fast mover versus with uh, patents, it is a little bit more flexible where patents actually allow you to uh, register. There's some limited chemovar protection, right? But there's also like single genetic sequence protection. 
and that can allow you to have a cut that is highly valuable and that gets passed on. And derivations from that cut or that work can also be pursued with the patent. And then even more broad is this copyright system that CopyLeft is built from. And that includes uh, just simply through the nature of this licensing agreement, you know, it includes when you pass on the seeds uh, that that use of those seeds in the future with information, you know, with the sticker is agreement to the terms again. So it just follows and it, and it follows. And if you make new seeds under that, you make a new strain, uh, you don't need to establish an inline, inbred line. You don't need to establish incredible uniformity. It's just the moment that the artistic work is created and then readable. So create a, a new seed line with a copyleft strain, and then you uh, have those rights as soon as there's the genetic sequence. Uh, and that is, is very nimble. So I think when we're thinking pragmatically and how do we as a community work with the system, get it to work well for us, that that is, uh, we want to look at how nimble the system is, right? The USDA system is very unnimble. You know, it's very slow. The patent system is moderately uh, nimble. And I think that the copyright system, and it's the reason it's used for music, uh, uniformly music is under copyright system and it's it's not because they wouldn't let them do it any other way it's just because the nimbleness of copyright makes it outperform other alternatives uh, and to get a privatized copyright is complicated uh in order to get it publicly known and defendable uh you know you might look at groups that can do that on a large scale uh and see them do it but you don't really see small mom and pop operations doing privatized copyright. And that's where then, again, having the nonprofit, it's, uh, you don't have to create a whole organization or a whole license for yourself. You know, that's the why if just a, a group of us come together as a community, as we are here, and we create a nonprofit, uh, it just does all of that work for the people. So again, very nimble, right? It's uh, you don't have to go make a whole nonprofit for yourself each time you want to do this. You don't have to make a whole new business or a whole new reservation of rights. You can just uh, continue that progress, you know, connect your work into the copyleft system that's already going to be built and they're available for you. And then, uh, then boom, there it is. Like, get it tested, do the agreements, pass it on with the label. Boom, boom, boom. And, uh, you know, that's a lot easier. So if people want to go the USDA route, they could. And if people want to go the patent route, they could. Uh, and I really think that this route is the most pragmatic, the most nimble, and uh, one where we can all benefit together. One where we build one system, you know, it's not a ton of different companies building a ton of different systems. It's just one easy system and then victories in defending that one place will carry on and help us defend it in other places uh, we may be able to get grants with this system by having a nonprofit and undertaking research making this information and this genomics information available you know grants are a great opportunity there we also are looking at continually 
having fundraising and donations. And then historically, the free software movement has actually won judgments against violators and against groups that have tried to come in and corporate raid uh, open source companies and that type of thing. And they've actually gotten money judgments that have kept them afloat. So the Free Software Foundation has actually uh, been funded largely off of its victories in enforcing the community good. So uh, once the ball is rolling, you know, it's the sort of thing that it can perpetually keep building, keep snowballing, building momentum, building force. And then each step of the way, it gets more valuable for the people that are already in it and the people that want to join. And I think that's really empowering. I think that that's, you know, you touched on in the beginning of the show, it's a lot of doom and gloom talk. And uh, it's it's empowering to think about this system that, you know, we put in the work now and it gets going and it just gets better. You know, it just, we get more genetics involved. We get more pathogen testing involved. We get more breeders involved, more talent, more ideas and more genetics. And it just keeps building and then victories in defending this and in protecting the breeders and cultivators that that gets put into the system as a further level of defense, as a further protection. And so I think that's super empowering to think that we as just small growers, breeders, you know, cultivators, if you're running an organization or you're just growing uh, for your own medical need, that, that we can all just come together and play a small role and create something that then uh, continues to serve all, all little people like this continues to serve the community and the uh, businesses that evolve out of it. And uh, just like with software then can offer those that are really successful in the community, either from a grassroots or from a corporate perspective, it can offer uh, great resources for that, you know, it doesn't have to be closed door to anything, uh, to any group. It can be an interconnected ecosystem that, that says, hey, I know like big money is going to come in. We all know big money is, is coming in. And uh, in, instead of setting up to fight it, we go, you know, jujitsu or Aikido style or Tai Chi style. How do we move this energy to work for the system? And so... Yeah, having a system in place when that energy moves in fiercely and it goes, oh, you know, we really don't want to fight these uh, community members bonding together. We really don't want to fight against all of this well-made copyleft system. We want to build it. You know, there's actually some cool stuff there. And if we work with it, then, then we don't have to spend a bunch of money to fight it, you know? And then they inherently contribute and their innovations don't get siloed away. So the small mom and pop or generational growers that you mentioned before, as small scale breeders or old school breeders can uh, also benefit from the large scale established groups, their progress, their research, their breeding, their testing, if it's through the copyleft system and they're benefiting from, from all of us, we can also benefit from them. It can be made available to all of us. And that's uh, something that we can all 
look forward to. You know, that's something that it'd be great to know, not just, oh, this strain is uh, supposedly powdery mildew resistant, you know, instead knowing, well, this strain was bred for powdery mildew resistance. And uh, then it was taken up by this uh, mega corporate facility that tested it and tested and tested and tested it and verified. And then, uh, you know, that that information was just folded back in. And now, you know, like, yeah, well, this is the incredibly well vetted powdery mildew resistant strain. that's just, you know, the start of it. I might get a little bit heady or uh, a little bit geek out for some people, but this can go really far. I mean, this can go to some pretty sci-fi concepts. So here's one. <clears throat> There's the process that genetic code is read into an organism, right? How do I get my hand or a leaf out of a genetic code? It's a process of protein folding. So these proteins are produced from the DNA and this folding occurs and then reactions occur and essentially the structure. So then you have a leaf or a finger. Well, they have figured out through certain systems and uh, at Google, most notably AlphaFold2, has figured out how this protein folding can be predicted. So we can look at, say, a genetic basing and coding, and we can look at protein availability or building block availability, and we can predict how then the structures are going to come off the DNA and react and structure. Then the next step is just seeing how those fit together to create the organism, to create the finger or the leaf. And so if we have a big database of these genetic sequences and we can use systems like AlphaFold2 or likely future even better systems, AlphaFold3, 4, or other alternatives, we can link those together and predict the proteins, the chemicals that will come off of that DNA and the organism structures, the structures of the living beings that will be produced. And so if we have, let's say a pathogen, which we know is deterred by a specific compound in some cannabis varietals, that that compound is produced through a certain folding of protein. We can use the program to say, oh, well, here is the genetic sequence that's needed to produce the proteins that make the chemical that fight the pathogen. And so we run the database, we look, oh, here is 27 varieties that have this genetic sequence. And we we know that uh, Predictively, they will produce the pathogen-deterring chemicals. 
we didn't need to go in and test each of those individual ones. You know, maybe they even come from somewhere else in the world, but we were able to look. And then we say, oh, well, three of those are show this other gene set that shows a resistance to heat stress. And I'm growing in an area where heat stress is important. So you say, oh, well, that's great. The nexus of that is there's that pathogen resistance, chemical production, and the heat stress tolerance gene. And you, you're like, oh, well, here's the three. And then you go, well, okay, but one of those uh, actually produces the chemovar ratios that I want. And so there you go. You were able to choose a strain with a lot higher precision of what your results are going to be and dealing with the situations preemptively in your area than you could at all in the present time. I mean, we have no way to do that right now. So best we could do is uh, if someone has done some research on basic genetic uh, back tracing from chemicals to proteins to the genetics and then found a genome and then someone else says, uh, oh, well, I have this cannabis variety and I tested it and it matches that, you know, and those information pieces have to find themselves in this wide open universe of information uh, that if those even happen to be tested separately and then come together, uh, then we have one, you know, versus the 27 examples I had before. Then you have to do the next layer to find the next one, matrix that, right? See, there's, we just don't have the ability to do that at the same level now. Uh, but that's the possibilities that these projects have is crowdsourced data for genetics. If we can, if we can create this data bank and then we have people that have the strains in various areas doing research and doing work on it, uh, the synergy of that is amazing. I, for example, there's situations that arise, innovations that cross apply, we could never predict. Recently, they found that a scanning AI system for pictures was supposed to identify pastries and identified which pastry was which and which bread was which super well. That that was mostly entirely applicable to scanning to find certain types of cancer cells and identifying those cancer cells. And it has now been a life-saving technology that's super powerful. And that never would have been possible if that bread scanning software hadn't been made available. So you think about that type of synergy, like no one could have predicted that. That's a level of synergy that is beyond what a corporation could organize, could manufacture, you know? It's the type of synergy that comes from a community uh, that is diverse and with many people acting in it, but sharing of information and resource within. Uh, so yeah, I can look at this and, and we can geek about how we can predict the genetics and then design what cultivar we want and then go look and find those genetics and then selectively breed for those, our dream cultivar, you know, and use this corpus for that. 
Um, and that's amazing. And then I can't even predict, I can't even begin to grok, begin to imagine these higher level synergies, these like bread scanning machine becomes tumor scanning, life-saving machine level synergy that can happen. But we're going to see that with cannabis. And uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to see that impaired by paywalls? Do we want to see that impaired by silos and locked into citadels or do we want to see the bizarre where we're all handing it around handing it around and then oh my gosh this amazing thing happened handing it around and handing it around and wow i can't believe you came up with that that saves my wife's life or you know we create these synergies and the interactions of people it's it's miraculous it's amazing and time and time again throughout history these unexpected combinations of ideas, these unexpected intersections of realities from different people's lives have produced the most amazing things, have produced the internet, have produced new languages, have produced, I mean, probably produced a lot of the plants that we know and love. So yeah, it's just a, the power of uh, carrying that forward is, uh, I think we can all really feel it within ourselves, you know? Sorry, juggling <laughs> too many things at once. Oh, you're good. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, that, that we feel it within ourselves, but we can't see it all the way yet, you know? We see, we feel all this potential. We feel the crest of the wave that we're on with all of this technology becoming available, with all of the predictive breeding becoming available and all of our ability to analyze and test and have designer chemovars and have, you know, these high fidelity, fast breeding projects and marker assisted breeding and, you know, as I was mentioning, Alpha Fold 2, there's all of these things and they're just bubbling up and they're starting to become possible. I think we can feel just, wow, that's amazing. Wow, this is happening. And we can't imagine the synergies of all these things uh, if they're all hooked up in an ecosystem that allows them to connect all with each other, you know? If they're in a way where their orientation in this ecosystem allows these synergies, these exponentially more impressive ideas to unfold, these overlaps of new concepts that create the truly brilliant concepts, you know? Any, any truly powerful trend uh, that is culminated and, and, and brought forward to the next level of evolution with an innovation, that that is like the overlap of various niches, the overlap of trends and subjects. And we have just so many that are so promising right now in the cannabis world and in plant breeding in general. So the, yeah, the ability to interconnect them all is uh, empowering and humbling. And uh, to me, really mind blowing, really, uh, something that I'm looking forward to in 15 years, 20 years, uh, what will the cannabis sphere look like? What will our ability to breed and create the plants that we envision and create new plants that 
do things that we haven't yet envisioned, you know? What's that going to look like? Uh, I don't know, but I think it's going to be incredibly influenced by that this type of project. It's going to be incredibly influenced by uh, what we choose to do with the information, how we choose to interconnect it. Hey, Fumador, how's it going? Welcome. Cheers, Solshine. Cheers, uh, Bowden. What's going on, dudes? Hey, we were just talking about patents. Actually, mate, you're a great, great time to chime in here. Uh, why don't you tell us about, you know, what your thoughts are? You you have a really awesome uh, cultivar, Morgana, uh, that you put a lot of work on, and um, you do a lot of other breeding and things like that. What are your thoughts on on cannabis patents? And I know you've heard him talk about ca uh, copy left before and, and kind of the, you know, trying to work on protections for breeders. What are your opinions as a, a breeder who really, you know, does it at a much bigger scale than than uh, certainly I do. Well, I don't know about bigger scale, but that's, I guess, uh, the future. I hope anyway, I hope it'll do well. And I, I guess I, I, I'm always thinking about kind of even with my grow, even though the grow might be a small grow or a big grow or anything else, I'm always kind of thinking, what if, you know? So like with the breeding, I think, what if? What if if I put any amount of work into something, I want it to kind of be worth something at the end. I think that's that's usually pretty a pretty natural thing. So how do I put this? Even if it were small scale Morgana, I still don't want to get ripped off. It's big scale Morgana, small scale Morgana. I still want to feel like I you know, did my work and it, it, it amounted to something, you know what I mean? Like when you, when you do any work, you want to feel like you, you, you didn't get ripped off for it. So like, it is on my mind, like what happens if uh, someone up the chain in, in, you know, Morgana's past, like something that subcool God or something, maybe someone seizes something from there, the Jack, the Ripper, the, the space queen, and somehow weaponizes that basically by patenting some specific uh, a chemovar in there or something, basically locking it up in such a way that it becomes difficult for me to kind of get away with, with using those genetics. Like, I don't know if that's going to happen, but people are always kind of paranoid about that kind of stuff. Like, Oh, what if they patent something down the line and, Maybe that doesn't even hold up in court, but it will create a chain of lawsuits as they, for example, sue all the small-time breeders, and the small-time breeders will just settle. You know what I mean? A lot of times, uh, Monster Cable was going around basically uh, uh, suing people with the name Monster in their business. And a lot of times, these businesses had every right to have the name Monster in their business. They were Monster something else in Wichita Falls or something, right? And, and Monster Cable comes along and basically just kind of sues them for that fucking name. You know, bigger entities could probably fight back, but smaller entities were like, dude, we just got it. We got, we're barely keeping the lights on and, you know, Kimmy needs to go to college and, you know, whatever the freaking, you know, hilarious story is. And they just basically pay the settlement and change their name. And so like that kind of stuff is on my mind that someone will patent or someone will come along and patent Morgana. I'd be like, dude, that's a name from King Arthur. It's been around for hundreds of fucking years, da, 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 da. But someone might come along and patent it or try to anyway, and maybe it won't hold up in court, but I'll have to litigate it or fight it basically long enough that I go under or something. So I don't know, it, it, I am kind of, um, Solshine was on my show, I am very kind of cognizant of, or at least paying attention to that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I'm, and I'm very supportive of stuff that Solshine is doing. So I guess I'll just finish this up by saying like, I feel like the, the more we open source a lot of this stuff, the more we ensure that it'll go forward. Anyway, hopefully that made sense. Yeah, thanks, Fumi. I think that there's a lot of people that mirror that uh, same concern. I think that's a lot of what uh, this is coming out of. You know, this movement is uh, is birthing, you know, now solutions. And uh, yeah, it comes out of that concern. Like, what could the big players do 
can the small breeders even weather an attack you know like oh can we win that's not the question like you said uh could we even weather it you know yeah that's it because like i say you know uh how do i put this maybe you will eventually prevail you know maybe the the law prevents uh, them from patenting your entire line maybe it'll be frivolous you know like what the fuck you, you patented space queen that was created 20 years ago or something but even still it'll lock shit up for maybe 20 years or something like i heard that uh well i guess it's not important but any number of different lawsuits will get tied up like the the mcdonald's chick the, with the coffee and whatever that was tied up in appeals and appeals and appeals for 20 years now granted that's something different but how do i put this like a bigger entity can simply throw lawyers at a smaller entity you know what i mean they don't necessarily have to have a case they can just keep appealing things on some level or in different jurisdictions or whatever else i'm i'm worried that silly stuff will will strangle small entities you know what i mean and uh i don't how do i put this like if if you don't care about that on some level you're like oh, i don't care about small breeders but you do on some level probably care about like good coffee or good food or good bread or good you know whatever and most of the time when you think about that that stuff comes from smaller producers you know the smaller producers can afford to kind of be specific and weird and quirky and so they'll make that bread that you like you know what i mean whereas safeway or somebody they just make whatever the fuck you know i, th I think we should all pay attention to this kind of stuff you know? I don't know i'm rambling about it but it pays to think about it Yeah, so I had a, something that I wanted to, to bring up just kind of in, in, in something I think is another layer that's going to end up ultimately being on top of this whole weird crazy cake is um, I think we're going to end up realizing that, and this is just based on my, again, prefacing this, this is based on my own data. So, you know, shred me if you want on that. Um, but I think that you're going to end up seeing certain terpenes that are triggered by very specific um, microbes. And if you don't have that microbe present, it's not going to trigger the gene uh, uh, to, to make the production happen. So I think that you're going to end up seeing people maybe even patenting microbe replication or like I, I could see that the microbes are saying this cultivar with this microbe set uh, being a, a utility patent or some kind of other you know, those being layered together to be a, a patent for defense, you know, I think is going to be something in the future that will be, you know, a problem, you know, I guess if you want to call it that. Um, uh, but certainly something that I don't think anyone's really talked about a lot. And now that we have access to, like, I was just looking, I watched a video, a sales video today on a thing that's a Q, uh, it's a little, it's not even a QPCR, but it's a little um, mic microbial sequencer that can connect to your phone and it's like two grand, right? And you can take like hundreds of samples a day in the field. You can bring it with you out in the field and just start fucking putting samples in it, right? Like that's going to be a game changer in the next one to two years. It's gonna be this quantum leap in genetic data because suddenly the stuff that we all had to send out to you know people, I can sequence immediately. And, and what do you do with like, we almost have to have a, a, something that is akin to uh, like a, um, uh, a non-fungible token to immediately, like if I had to protect that kind of data, because if I'm, you know, putting all that out there, you know, hey, I, you know, if you could take something and make the software to where it would directly connect from that sequencing data directly into like a non-fungible token type, again, not that, but something that would function as a blockchain record 
on a ledger, I guess maybe that's the better way to put it. Um, that would then record that, hey, I was the first one to record this in the blockchain ledger and no one can ever fuck with that, right? Like it's the same way that Bitcoin works and all that, right? That's so that could, that could be a way that allows people to at least say, hey, I was the first one. And then if you want to go back later on and then protect that or, or say Monsanto ends up starting to mass produce it and you just want to say, fuck you, Monsanto, and you already had that on the ledger, that would give you the ability to go back and pull the carpet up from them, you know, in that way. Um, that Something like that, I would pay on like a per entry basis for, uh, or even maybe, you know, I don't know how you would financially support that, maybe a subscription service to maintain the thing, uh, but, but something that just, you know, I think that could be a kind of a middle ground that, um, That intrigues me that you say that because it reminds me a lot of um, uh, what are they? I can't remember the expression "backyard patent" or whatever, where uh, someone basically that invents I don't know a better mousetrap. They basically print it out on you know whatever whatever you know computer pay paper they have or whatever, and essentially mail it to themselves and a couple of people. And that goes for a book or any kind of you know intellectual property. Basically, they will essentially mail themselves a copy with a sealed postmark, they won't open the, the envelope, it'll have a post date on it. And uh, all it does really is in the event of being sued is kind of show like, oh, I was the first person I existed with this way before you say that you took this or blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, how do I put it? It wasn't um, a lot of protection, but it was something. So like people have been doing stuff like that for ages, kind of to protect themselves against, like, even if they go, um, the dude that got, there's a movie, there's a couple movies about the dude that invented wiper blades. And then he basically like took it to a bunch of car companies and Ford decided to just rip him off. And so he had to basically go through like 30 years of freaking litigation uh, uh, through this, even though he had the patents and everything. Uh, how do I put it? Uh, stuff like kind of being able to prove intellectual ownership kind of puts you at the head of that basically. So I guess what I was trying to say. I guess that's a bad one, but. Yeah, that used to be a really common thing actually. Uh, and in 2012, they did some changes to the IP system. So the US patent system uh, is now first to file. It used to be first to conceptualize and that was very useful. But like, like you said, for books or things like that, it's still a useful technique. And uh, yeah, great that you mentioned that. Anyone who's writing a book that's listening, send yourself a copy of it in the mail. Yeah um but yeah no not for anything um that's copy uh or excuse me anything that's patent related uh or later patentable that's no longer a defense for uh, it's a little frustrating but uh it does mean that then people have to put it more publicly in order to claim that right in the future you know um if you publish a copywritten work and then it becomes widely seen um, then you don't necessarily have to register the copyright. Just it being widely seen or seeable uh, can be just the presumption that it is uh, that people have access to it. So later, if someone is, uh, you know, misappropriating it, using it improperly, then uh, you go like, "Hey, this is uh, had access to this, just like everyone else in society. This was here." So. Um, in an envelope if you just send that to yourself it doesn't have that same that same thing um so yeah and i think it was 2012 that that did shift um so that's a less applicable tactic but still uh a good historical one i remember doing that 
before I could afford a patent uh, some of my startups before 2012. Uh, I was a little disappointed when that changed, actually. <laughs> Probably changed due to uh, litigation from big entities, I would imagine, right? Like Apple and Facebook and whatever, no? Yeah, lobbying uh, under the Obama administration from big actors like that, exactly. They didn't try to hide it. It was all in the open, big internet actors. And uh, this is an interesting thing that in that ecosystem, uh, they may not have defeated the big actors. Uh, we could have a whole debate on whether you can actually defeat the big actors in the current system in any way. But um, they did successfully connect the big actors into an ecosystem which values the small actors and allows them to still be a part of it and benefit from the whole thing. And that's really key here. A lot of people in cannabis are like, yeah, let's suit up for this battle with corporate cannabis. Like I've been in a battle with big corporate people and you know, um, my, yeah, when they start throwing down millions of dollars that goes to fight you, you know, it's like I, I've had private investigators break into my house. I've had, you know, them wire my internet up and uh, then threaten me explicitly in emails about uh, that they have the information from the internet tapping, um, you know, the devices I, I that, this, on I camera. Had, and, I had an incident with another guy I was working for that was in a patent thing and they broke into his apartment and blamed me because I had a key and I was, I was doing a video game live stream and uh, I was like, nah, here's a video of exactly where the fuck I was. I was playing World of Warcraft. Well, you know, I got a whole guild worth of witnesses and a live <laughs> stream through it. Like, wasn't me. Anyways, it was funny. That's what's up. Yeah, totally. They pull tricks like that all the time. I mean, so like in my whole, in my whole uh, patent and like uh, civil litigation, in my previous career like with uh, green energy they did some crazy stuff to the point where i took the opposing attorney to the bar and fought real hard and got him disbarred so uh you know i still didn't save my patent they did super illegal stuff and the uh attorney or i brought him to the bar and and he's no longer uh bar enrolled they they took his license so um i still don't have the patent right you know you can fight this thing really hard and uh the force of it the insidiousness of the system uh when it's pumped with investor money and the uh way that lawyers will play it the way that that this whole corporate machine is built you know when they teach like hostile takeover techniques at, at colleges like yale in their business department there's whole courses on it you know, that we can't think we're going to suit up and fight and win against corporate cannabis come federal legalization. And when it's backed and, you know, it's players on the scale of Google or Monsanto or Marlboro, you know, we, uh, we need to be pragmatic. And the only way that we can win is if we all together or a large amount of us as a community come together. We create something that it that it works better for everybody if 
that's the way it works, you know. Then when the big players come in, the big money comes in, they don't need to flip over boats. They just plug in and it's built in a way that it benefits all of us little guys for them to come into the space. It may not be the victory that, that uh, we would dream of. It may not be absolute control by the little guys. It may not be like back in the day when we could just grow out and like, you know, we were the growers, but uh, it will be, if done right, an ecosystem that puts us on the same level as the big players. And that comes with additional perks that we didn't have, you know, like we were saying earlier, the genetic testing abilities, the pathogen testing, these large scale data set opportunities. So it's a, it's a trade-off. And if we go in and we try to fight and we try to, you know, dragon slay against these corporate entities, um, it's just setting ourselves up for a bloodbath instead of, uh, where we could set ourselves up to benefit from them being in the field uh, and not benefit on an individual basis, but benefit as a community, benefit uh, not by each signing up for this hegemonic group that's coming in and choosing which hegemony we want, but by creating a system where it isn't a hegemony, where the big guys come in and their resources uh, help build this thing that we already have going, you know, we already have a great community. We already have a great system. We already work together as a community. We just need to, uh, to keep that going and upscale it and formalize it to this next layer so that that next layer isn't built for us. I mean, when you say like it doesn't better, it probably won't benefit the individual or whatever. I was just thinking to myself, like, you know, why not? Like, that's that's kind of the key. We could have a, a different way. What am I trying to say? There could be a better way. Uh, we could all freaking kumbaya or whatever. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like we always assume that the corporate entities will come in and steamroll everything because that's just what they seem to do. But on some level, I was thinking to myself, well, shit beer varieties are not patented you know we're always talking about on my show like all the cool new beers are coming up from like the beer competitions whenever and that's just, just literally like open source and the recipes are open source and i was thinking to myself like even canvas strains you don't even need to patent those things you could have a line and then nobody else will potentially have your line unless they had your genetic material and so it'll be like the secret spices or secret recipe whatever you'll just hold on to that and through your kind of trade secrets you'll work that line and do your thing and for example if some small scale breeder this is kind of the fantasy part of my story if some small scale breeder comes along and has something that could benefit that line that you're working on you could go and you could buy those seeds so these gigantic corporate entities instead of steamrolling everything into oblivion could basically be the phenotype testers for small scale breeders you know small scale breeders their problem is always dude i can't run a hundred thousand plant field and then the big fucking breeder is like dude, all we have is like robots and employees that don't give a shit. We need somebody who cares about 100,000 plants in a field. So if you combine those two fucking dots in a not sadistic way for a change, you could actually do really cool stuff. You know, of course it won't go that way because some asshole penny pinching dipshit will be like, well, no, but we could cut the asshole out and make more money. But like you could actually have this other system where everybody benefits. You know what I mean? Everybody could work together. Everybody could benefit. Like, what do I care if Marlboro wants to have a hundred thousand million, whatever the fucks, as long as I have my own little enclave and they don't fuck with me, I don't care if they do whatever they want. You know, like there's a way that we could even work together. You know what I mean? I could give them cool shit that they would work for me. You know what I mean? And like we, everything would be better. Maybe not Marlboro, but you know what I mean? I'm babbling enough. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh 
yeah, that is exactly what we want. And like, we see that today where Google is paying programmers, you know, to work on open source technologies. And um, a great example is with Twitter, where Twitter uh, paid for the continued development of the Signal app. And Signal app is a whole open source communication system, secure communication. Uh, it's a great system, Signal. You can use it to text securely, video call and call securely. And uh, Twitter wanted the programmers who were on it. The programmers who were on it had built some code that was benefiting Twitter through the open source system. And they were like, great. So they supported, they became an investor in the Signal enterprise and then uh, has backed that continued development. And all they want out of the deal is that uh, the open source system continue to be built because it benefits Twitter, you know? So uh, that's just a couple of guys, you know, who happened to create this really good system. And the system happened to have things in it that would benefit the big players. And the big players are like, that's great. We want more of that. Let's pay you to keep doing it. Um, I think that's uh, a lot of breeders uh might think like oh the idea of intellectual property is so alluring i can i can assure that i get money out of this and resource out of this in the future but it's like actually wouldn't you rather just keep doing what you're doing feel a sense of protection and then maybe even get a paycheck just to keep putting out good varieties into the public good you know if you if you ask yourself as a breeder like which is better it's uh it's pretty clear that just being on a retainer to continue to be paid to do what you love to do what you chose to do and wanted to do with a sense of protection that's that that's a lot better uh of an option and that's uh that's what pragmatically working with these forces looks like you know I'm uh, I'm wary as many people are of these large scale cannabis entities and the for profit motives that they carry. And uh, yeah, having some system that puts the community first, like a nonprofit system and the ecosystem surrounding it, uh, then allows for that for profit motive to be mitigated. And uh, just like we see with software, it can be transformed to fuel the little guys, you know fuel that continued uh innovation and it's gonna work for the big guys too you know uh there's a reason why it's been adopted because the ideas just get better you can just make better ideas when there's so many more people involved and when there's like you were saying so many more testers involved and uh, so much more access to data than being siloed so if it's there if it's in existence it's a no-brainer you're coming in you're big corporate you're like yeah I'll, I'll uh, connect into this because I benefit and okay, sure. Other people benefit. I mean, that's what we want is for us, everybody to benefit in the community. Yeah. I mean, you were saying like, um, how do I put this? Uh, uh, what does the, the seed breeder want to do, right? Like what does a breeder want to do with their seeds? Sometimes they might think, oh, I want to protect my seeds with patents or whatever, because they don't know what's coming. But like, does that breeder want to be, uh, what was the dragon's name in, in Lord of the Rings? I can't remember. Or in the Hobbit. Um, whatever but he's basically his fucking 
uh, smog. Uh, f- fucking dragon is sitting there on a pile of gold. He's not spending the gold. He's not going on vacations with the gold. He's a dragon. He could fly, right? But still, like, whatever. In the story, the dragon's super into gold and just sits there on this goddamn pile of gold and doesn't do anything with it. And most breeders would not really be into that. They're like, oh, I'm sitting on my pile of seeds that's not doing anything says no happy breeder you know they actually want their seeds to be be grown and on some level i think they want to find new and new and new and new and so on some level if you abolished which you know people tease this idea out right like you know the fanciful hippies that that don't know what they're talking about you know i'm I'm being farcical right like they probably do know what they're talking about but they say like hey what if we actually abolished some of these intellectual property laws and actually got rid of patents and stuff or changed them or made them really short term what then and honestly, like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. But also what then is people would only focus on always creating new shit. And so, like, honestly, on some level, if you wanted to see the craziest, the most amazing cannabis ever, you would abolish all those patent laws. And you'd basically say, OK, go run your stuff. And then people would just go run their stuff and nobody would have protections. Everybody would have to. Hey, if somebody rips off such and such. OK, well, that's that's life. Now they get to run their stuff. Now you get to run your stuff and on and on it would go. How do I put this? It would be a different market than we have right now. So it's a little bit unpredictable, but you would have an incredible variety of cannabis, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're coming out of an era where some of that was true. You know, we had prohibition by the government, but we had this sense of sharing and there's some pretty awesome cannabis. I mean, they made some cool cannabis, not, you know, not hoarding it away. Uh, I liked your example of like smog sitting on his, his pile of gold. And it's like, uh, it's, it's like gold. That's not even worth anything. If you don't use it, you know, gold might be like an investment, but it's even worse than sitting on your pile of gold. Cause if you don't get those seeds out there, someone else is going to make seeds and overcome those breeding goals and, and get to the next level of progress. And so, um, yeah, this is the sort of thing that I can see it like building to where uh, like, why wouldn't you put your thing into this system? Because then uh, it continues to stay up to date. You know, we see this with open source software all the time. It's like continually updating because people are continually finding an issue and then making this fix for it and then uploading it. And so that continual push is uh yeah i mean i i for one i mean i'm not on the large scale of seed breeders i'm very amateur in my my breeding but um i for one would love to see some of the issues that i come up with in my come up against in my breeding uh just be ironed out you know out there in the world maybe i can't get it all perfect but i got like three quarters of, of those objectives good and it's ready for release, let's say. And then I get it out there and I see, oh my gosh, those were overcome. Uh, and we see this happen in the world, you know, someone will give uh, someone else a cut, right. And say, oh, I've been breeding it to make it really hardy for this type of conditions. And then the second person crosses it with something, Fina hunts through it, does some deep selection, maybe a couple rounds of that and they flick it back to the person and the first person is like this is awesome you made it even better that's great they keep doing work on it um i mean that's how like 
old school like Neville and those people did that all the time. So this is uh, the type of system we want, right? Is, is this share back and forth, keep improving, keep improving, keep improving. I don't want to get seeds that I can't make better. Like if I get a bunch of seeds and then it's like, you can't breed with these and you can't do anything with them. You can't give your mom the weed that comes from this. Uh, it's your medicine, marijuana, and uh, any seeds that come out of this, you have to burn. Uh, I don't want that because I want to be able to make it better. Like <clears throat> where I'm growing right now is right next to a swamp. And uh, I, when I'm going through selection, it's like, it's fierce and it's noticeable when it's better than the last, you know, <clears throat> because it survives the exposure to the swamp better. You know, uh, nobody has the exact same swamp except my neighbors. Right. And so if my neighbors and I get some seeds, we want to be able to improve them. We want to make it work for the swamp. And I think that that's a, it's a big plus. That's like another big plus for small scale breeders. You know, Steve, you were asking earlier, how will groups uh, that have just been hanging out in their small community breeding, uh, maybe mom and pop operations, uh, how would they be benefited from this? Well, I mean, there's one, you put it out there and then someone is like, hey, I fixed this little issue with it uh, for you. And then they get it back and they're like, that's awesome. That part always bugged me about it. Or, you know, oh, it was always a little bit nitrogen finicky and get burned or, you know, whatever. Right. And now it's like durable and, and puts that straight into growth or whatever. So I think that's an advantage. And then uh, we also don't get copycats in the same way. Like if we have a data bank of all the submitted varieties and you put your variety in and then someone else tries to submit that same variety, then uh, it's going to come up and our organization is going to be like, hey, we're going to find a way to get this. Oh, I'm sorry, I got a delay. This happens on Femidor sometimes. Go ahead. I know it's all good. Uh, I was just saying that having that sort of system is really useful because very often we see in the community people saying like, oh, this person stole my strain. They just renamed it. And this is a big problem. I should have my credit for what I built. And I, as an inventor and as someone who is also endeavoring to breed, I feel very strongly about, you know, if you create something, uh, you deserve to get the recognition for that, right? And so if a, uh, if a copycat strain is out there, uh, and yours is already submitted to CopyLeft, then you go, hey, uh, can you submit yours to CopyLeft real quick? And, and we'll settle this, you know? It's not this whole, he said, she said, oh, it looks like his picture is well. Actually, no, it's just slightly related. Well, no, we just do the genetic sequence. Boom, boom. And there's one centralized certification authority then uh, those small mom and pop operations don't have to suffer losing their credit. You know, we had the grassroots public interest meeting. Uh, thanks for covering that, Fumador. And one of the things that was brought up, Clackamas Coot mentioned his experience with people taking credit for some of his strains, uh, as he said, and this is like, even if he doesn't want to release those strains, except to some friends, uh, 
this this prevents those issues because then he can later even get a copy of those seeds let's say a seed bank is selling it he can get that and then run it through the copyleft system again and if it comes back as a duplicate you know there's a clear uh there's a clear line of evidence there there's a non-disputability of it and it's uh that's something that our community struggles with i see it pretty frequently it's the authenticity of the genetics is this the real lemon sour diesel but really is it the real lemon sour diesel okay but which og kush like right and yeah we're at a point where we got data we got testing like we shouldn't be putting up with six different strains that have nothing to do with each other all being called the same thing just because somebody uh wanted it to be or one strain called six different things because six people wanted to uh or five people wanted to say that they bred it and one person actually did so these sorts of things it just simplifies it you know having uh central databasing it would potentially i don't know even if we i guess i'm i'm saying something different but how do i say this i'm just trying to kind of envision something different with all these kind of patent laws and how everything is getting more and more closed like if we opened things up we wouldn't have to worry about like uh how do i put this i guess without mentioning any names there's a bunch of breeders out there that kind of uh as soon as you mention their name there's a bunch of hate because there's a, there's a bunch of kind of uh, back and forth. Uh, there's some breeders that think that some other breeders basically stole cuts or, 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 or lines of theirs or seeds that they popped and then basically renamed into something else. And, you know, on some level that's, you know, genetics, of course, and on some other level, if you've ever done anything like that, you know, that feeling of being ripped off. But one of the reasons why I think people have that feeling of ripped off and even creating that incentive for people to do the ripping off and change the name is because there are these kind of, potential intellectual property things. Whereas if you removed that and basically made it open source and said, bro, like the information is available over at Soul Shines, like that's the such and such. If you removed all that kind of mystery and the potential, you know, uh, uh, financial ramifications of owning that strain from it, people could basically say, no, bro, this is the such and such perps from so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And they could just say, yep, it was awesome. I took it and I moved it on. If you want to know more about it, if you wanted to know more about it, you would just follow, I guess, Steve's kind of intellectual blockchain up the river to find who bred that original perps. And you could maybe go and talk to them again. But how do I say this? You would you would know where it came from a little bit better because nobody would have an incentive to kind of change the name for financial game. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm, you know, this is a hippie mentality. Maybe it's not gonna, it's not gonna go that way, probably, but it could, you know what I mean? Like we could have open intellectual property on strains we could have like not patented lines and whatever else that you just work and if someone wanted to work it they would work it and they would say yes that's the so-and-so from so-and-so i don't know anyway i think there's a a middle way you know i like uh, the philosophy of the buddha a lot and the buddha talks about the middle way the middle path and in any extreme situation i find it very prudent to look for the middle way to me copyleft is the middle way here there is the extreme end of no protection just total open source and i think we've seen that with strains so far it has served us great in a uh, conventional or underground market but it is uh, a difficult and undefended position to be in in a uh, formalized market. On the other end, 
there's the extreme of uh, extreme asset ownership and the idea of turning everything conceptual into an asset which is privatized, which has ownership by a specific named entity, whether that's a person or a business, and that it can be exchanged the same as currency or the same as an investment vehicle and uh, thus litigated about in the same ways and swept up when people go bankrupt and all sorts of things like that. Uh, And to me, in the middle of those two, extremes lies copy left and these sorts of protected measures which utilize a system of intellectual property which utilize a system that's already in place and you know part of the governmental system of laws that we live within and then which prioritizes that community good which allows for that openness but doesn't uh, have the naivete of uh, just assuming that it will all be treated well and not locked down. You know, it, it, I really like with the uh, general public license in software, how it, uh, which is what this open cannabis license is based off of. It talks about not, restricting the rights of yourself and others not asking others to give up rights and when we think about our human rights and our rights as individuals uh these aren't things that just existed in nature in the way that they do today you know we built these and struggled for these human rights and these rights uh as people and so when we give them up in order to interact with uh, software or interact with food or grow plants, that uh, that is a loss. It's a loss of something that has been fought for that we are benefited by. You know, we all benefit from freedom of speech and we feel that we can be more open in our speech and speak more clearly and speak, you know, uh, better without the halters of that right being missing and i think the same thing is true with copy left uh where that right to use the farmer material to use the seed material the plant material uh with a sense of freedom that that right is something that deserves to be defended It's something that deserves to be upheld and that we really value and that actually creates a sense of freedom that fosters creativity, that fosters the creation of new things. And so I think that these are, these are able to click together, you know, the two extremes, the extreme open and the extreme lockdown, you know, they actually, if you just fit them together the right way, they can support each other. It seems paradoxical, but uh it's a you know a stronger when we're together sort of situation there's a uh, uh places where the rules of law with intellectual property uh, may actually serve some great function and if we build that uh those angles on it to prioritize openness and community uh then i, I think that's a, a stronger system you know it's integrated the strength of the privatized side strength of the maybe legal mechanization in with the 
interconnectedness and the open building and that bizarre approach that that trading that open progress mentality um it clicks them in together you know the chaos and order in this middle dance together and that that's what we want for innovation is uh chaos and order dancing into new beautiful form That's some intellectual yin yang shit, bro. Yeah, I'm into it. I think it's all about balance. It's all about balance and being pragmatic, you know. I I wish it was a thousand ways, you know, but it is how it is. What happens in the future will be based on what is today. And we have to plan, you know, we have to plan in a, in a balanced way that takes into account reality today and that works towards the tomorrow that we want. How, op- how optimistic are you, uh, Soulshine, about all this? I, I feel like I asked you this on my show and I don't know if, if anything's changed. Like, are you, um, do you feel like you're fighting a, a, a valiant and yet ultimately losing fight or do you think that there's a real chance that we'll have like a, an open source kind of i don't know at least a, a, a third a second or third different way a middle way so to speak of uh, kind of can- cannabis uh, ip what do you think yeah i'm very hopeful i think that we have the perfect timing uh if you know it's uh i can only do what i can do and there are already a good number of people that are involved in putting in work and i want to give a ton of gratitude and credit to those people also also a whole discord of people and uh, we welcome new people you know i'm always saying that but i really like we want all the ideas the community you know this is the strength of togetherness and uh it's happening you know it's happening six months ago when i started looking around to see if other people were were moving this direction uh I haven't, I hadn't found anyone who was putting the pieces together formally. I found a lot of people that thought along similar lines, a lot of encouragement. And um, I think if things were not done, then yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be very hopeful, but I think that we have a lot that we can hope for if we do things, you know, it, and if you can't be involved in the organization formally and you're listening, you know, jump on to GoFundMe and, and toss us some cash so we can found this and get the nonprofit uh, status and all of that. You know, it's not we there, there are some lawyers that are putting some free time, but uh, we want to pay them at some point too. you know, like respect and let us all eat and whatnot. Um, and yeah, if, if we all put in the effort that we can uh, and this all comes together i feel incredibly hopeful it doesn't need to become the standard it just needs to exist it just needs to exist because then there's the bastion of freedom you know and then it's continually building it's continually building it doesn't exist yet and so it's a little bit like oh man the landscape is scary of intellectual property with cannabis but as soon as there's this bastion of like oh this is actually like pretty rocking and like really puts the community first and like really transparent and open and it's there uh it doesn't matter if there's two varieties doesn't matter if there's only one variety at first, it builds, it builds. More people put in more varieties, more preservationists are supported and, and click in their projects. And 
you know, we, uh, we continue to build it from there. And then if we have an issue later on, like at least it's already there. If there's big patent litigation happening in another area of the cannabis community uh, or big IP litigation, people can look at this space, this, uh, you know, autonomous zone of freedom, so to speak, that we've created here where people uh, can come together and, uh, and have reprieve from that. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think it's doom and gloom at all. I think it's a super hopeful story. And I think that, uh, you know, people like me and you and, and Steve, you as well, and, and, all of the listeners and people that are passing on the information, it's happening. You know, there's people working on this that I don't even know and I haven't met yet. Uh, and who have ideas that are, are going to continue to be the breakthroughs and uh, that that is so empowering to me. So yeah, I'm super hopeful about it. In fact, more hopeful than last time we talked um, because I see it coming together. I see it coming together and I see uh, that there's no need for it to be the be all end all, you know, People can get their patents if they want. People can public domain it if they want. And uh, I just so happen to think, and based off of my experience and my pretty deep inside look, uh, being dragged through the IP system a couple times, uh, that this is the m- most pragmatic and the best angle, you know, copy left to protect and preserve the breeders and the cultivators and the genetics. So uh, I'm really hopeful about it. Oh, man. Uh, what were you saying about um, you said something about uh, cool <coughs> pardon me, cool people you haven't met and I think about that sometimes how you may not have even met some of your best friends yet you know what I mean like unless you're 110 years old maybe even then you haven't met your, met your best friend maybe you'll live another five years that happens but how do I put it like a lot of people that are in something new like this or copy left you're just getting started like I don't know any anything in life really. You may still yet have to you you have yet to have met your best or most productive partner or friend or person you clicked with yet. You know what I mean? Like you can always kind of be optimistic for that. That literally around the corner will be somebody that will be like, dude, that freaking guy or that chick or whatever that chick gets me. And you're together. Your ideas are more salient. Or maybe they come along and suddenly they fill a hole in copy left. Like, oh, we didn't have a so-and-so and then suddenly that person walks in like oh what's this basically uh and how do i put this you didn't even know them now six months from now they're like you know you're you're attached at the hip like that kind of stuff happens all the time when you look back on your own life you know what i mean so i, th- I think i just i'm just basically like kind of marveling on that little thing like it pays to be optimistic sometimes that you know like fuck you don't know what's coming along yeah why not be optimistic right i mean be pessimistic, be optimistic, isn't going to change it, you know? Optimistic feels better. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, uh, I'm really excited about where this is headed, and I just want to call in those people, you know? I just want to call in uh, anyone who's listening to this. Maybe you haven't been exposed to the copyleft idea in the past. Maybe you have been exposed to it in other contexts, and you want to get involved, uh, we'd love to have you involved. So go ahead and jump on the discord. There's the link on copyleftcannabis.org, also copyleftcannabis.com. And yeah, I would love to hear from you and, and connect the allies. Cause that's what this is all about, you know, interconnecting the community 
and creating this idea ecosystem, updating it into this new form where it can uh, work well for all of us in this new world that we're all in, you know, new world the industry and community is entering into. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, why don't you tell everybody again uh, what your website is and uh, how people can find you if they want to get involved. And then, uh, yeah, uh, uh, what your Instagram and stuff is too. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, and thanks everybody watching. I really appreciate it. Really, the first thing is just if you like what you hear, if you take this moment now, you feel inside yourself, you want this to happen, spread the word, number one. And then number two, you can jump on our GoFundMe, and that's creating copyleft cultivars on GoFundMe. Also the link on our copyleftcannabis.org uh, that helps us pay for the formation of the organization, uh, to bring this beautiful license up to date and available to you and also working on that nonprofit, not-for-profit. So yeah, jump over, contribute to the GoFundMe. Also, if you want a cool shirt like this, this says uh, Copyleft Cultivars and Copyleft Cannabis. There's a couple different ones. This is the Copyleft Cultivars one and it's my uh, Fractals that's actually cannabis probiotic organic cannabis that I grew and then uh, turned into fractal kaleidoscopes. So you can catch that uh, at the Contrado shop. So that's all also linked on the website, copyleftcannabis.org. And then also the Instagram copyleft cannabis on Instagram. You can jump on the mailing list again on the website, copyleftcannabis.org. And then uh, you can also find me on uh, Instagram at Soulshine Growing. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear all the ideas, all the feedback. Um, even if you don't like the idea, I want to hear about it. Like really, community input is key. So yeah, jump on there, copyleftcannabis.org. Get on the mailing list contribute to the GoFundMe, join the Discord, join the discussion, and love to have you involved. Looking forward to making this possible for the community. Again, thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Fumador, for jumping on, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Much love, everybody. Heck yeah, I'm happy to support you and have kind of see the spiritual successor of what, you know, really set out to be a good thing that was kind of sabotaged because of the financing aspect of it you kind of carried on spirit into a by by someone i think truly is trying to do the right thing and certainly been asking the right questions and doing the right homework and and you know i've certainly been trying to help put you in touch with the right people that at least are knowledgeable on this to uh you know help steer you as best you can and give you some extra resources at least some people that went through some of the circuses before and I could at least help you know what to avoid, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah, big shout out to all the people that have been working on this from all the angles, all the industries. Like, as many great scientists have said, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, the giants who came before us. And I'm honored to stand on those shoulders. Thanks for propping me up onto some of those shoulders, Steve. And I'm excited to 
be shoulders for more people. Fumador, why don't you tell everybody uh, how, to, how to find you and, and your stuff. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Fumi is uh, the show that I go when I want to uh, not keep track of 10,000 things and just kind of relax and have fun. And we often end up uh, shooting the shit with a lot of cool people, coot, clacking the scoot on a regular basis and others. So if you enjoy the content on here and me and him rambling like idiots, uh, you'll certainly enjoy our, our much longer version of ramblings on, on Fumadors if you if you like kind of the preview version of my channel, you have the, uh, the uh, I think him and I went, or that one, or a couple of times, we've gone six, seven hours on your show. One of the first times you were on, you were talking with Coot until like three o'clock in the morning, and then Coot had to like tap out because he was basically passing out, and that was the only end of the show. Yeah, like uh, basically we, we have, hi guys, uh, we've been babbling in your ears the whole show. You're like, who the fuck is that guy? Uh, I run this show I call Crawl, uh, Chronic Table basically, but uh, it's at my channel, Fumidor at the Flavors. If you look up on YouTube, Fumidor at the Flavors or look in the chat or whatever, I guess. Um, anyway, we just like to, we like to have a, I don't know, what do I call it? Like a cocktail party with weed kind of, you know, because uh, weed has been illegal. It should have never been illegal. Uh, but uh, if it had never been illegal, we'd have these kind of weird little groups that we'd have, you know, like a, like a bar, you know, like like a bar that you pop in or a pub or whatever or a coffee shop you pop in with your friends or you know in in the uk they have that kind of pub culture everyone comes and says hello it's kind of that thing we have regulars we have friends that pop in and people in the chat that hop in and we allow everybody or i i guess allow everybody it's an open door kind of policy like you don't have to be an experienced grower you don't have to be a beginner grower you can be all of those things and uh we get to have like different perspectives as a result of that you know like we have uh really really advanced growers like you and coot any number of other people that come by that have big gardens and have been doing it for a long time uh, but they have a conversation they share a conversational space with you know folks that got started a couple of years ago and we end up having really kind of i think fruitful and also interesting discussions so uh another thing that i like to i always sometimes forget about this but i'm always trying to integrate the kind of food and wine and kind of culinary aspects of life in with uh, uh with cannabis so this coming show on saturday is going to be brews with buds and so that's where we have like not just beer but also microbrew uh, beer and uh, coffee and you know uh, wine some people come on with a glass of wine in fact soul shine will probably come on with a glass of wine and uh, the whole idea is that we just kind of integrate the things that would normally be integrated you know what i mean like you don't eat cheese by itself you eat it with other food so like you'll have cannabis with your lunch and you'll have it with your wine you'll have it with this and so we kind of do that on my show so anyway i guess i'll stop rambling but hope you guys stop by fumador and the flavors and we like to goof off tuesdays sort of secretly wednesdays and saturdays we're on in the evenings anyway cheers guys oh man thanks for thanks for coming on and uh yeah always enjoy have, hanging out on fumador's uh Fumador's show again if you haven't checked it out uh, i'll put a, a thing in the description uh, but definitely uh, uh, a fun, uh, a fun show, and a little bit different. For I, I think your analogy with the bar is great. You know, we have uh, we kind of just shoot the shit. We often you're linking like different topics that are not necessarily cannabis, but something that's like cultural related to the the scene, and it's just fun, it's just like relaxed. And a lot of times people get on um, funny rants, and right. oh man, that's good. Appreciate that, dude. Cheers. Yeah. And you guys can find me at uh, Aquaponic Cannabis, uh, or uh, Potent Ponics at SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Sorry, my brain is in 10 paces right now. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Uh, you can also find us at apmjclass.com, which I'm going to link here. Um, Marty and I have a full in-depth uh, online aquaponic cannabis training class. Uh, we cover all different types of stuff. We're constantly adding new content. We have live sessions each month. Uh, we have all types of handouts and we're always adding to this kind of library of knowledge uh, that you pay to have access to. And uh, we're going to be working on, um, uh, it's kind of a, a buy-in and then you pay a small fee just to, to pay for the upgrades each year uh, for the new content. So it kind of makes it affordable for people. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a home version of that. So it'll be a little bit, you know, minus the commercial stuff. It's not really relevant to make it a little more affordable and uh, some other cool classes coming later in the year. And then uh, uh, also check out, um, apmjnutes.com uh, if you're looking for nutrients for your aquaponic cannabis website or your uh, facility um, we have a whole bunch of different stuff available either in kits that make it simple so you can just buy it and forget it uh, or uh, if you want to dose it yourself we sell everything in one and four pound amounts um, you can we will happy to sell you more than that just you send us a thing and we'll give you a quote uh, for more than that so um, and all this stuff comes with uh, instructions on dosing and all that. So it helps uh, for, for cannabis growers. And uh, we really just started it because people kept asking me, what's the source where I can buy fish safe stuff. So uh, I got together with the guy from True Aquaponics and, and all of our stuff on here, when used as directed is fish safe. So you don't have to worry about killing your you know fish or anything else. So, uh, and then um, I'll, I'll be sure to check out if you're in Austin, I will be speaking at the Lucky Leaf Expo here in Austin on May 15th. Uh, I'm on the cultivation panel, which I think is at 11 a.m. I got to double check. Uh, and then I'm also on for the uh, aquaponics talk, I believe is one o'clock. Again, I got to double check that, but um, they just sent me an updated schedule. I have a chance to open an email, but um, check this out here. And, uh, and then if not, I'll also be in Dallas, July 9th and 10th, uh, Houston, November 5th and 6th. Uh, Albuquerque, February 25th and 26th, and Oklahoma City, September 3rd and 4th, uh, Jacksonville, Mississippi, October 8th and 9th, uh, and uh, Albu uh, Albuquerque is in February, or anyway, maybe I read it, I'm tired, um, <laughs> but uh, come check it out, if you're going to be in Austin, or if you're going to be down at South by Southwest, um, you know, hit me up, let's hang out, I got some other cool people I'll be down there with, uh, so, uh, you know, it's going to be a fun time for sure, if you're, uh, if you're uh, one of us. So uh, we'll definitely have fun when we're down there. So I will see you guys next time and uh, we will catch you guys uh, next week. Um, we may or may not have a show. I will be traveling to Austin next week. So um, we might not have a show next week, but if we don't, um, you know, we'll do some live stuff from the conference for sure. Uh, 